Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Dr. Jeff. He's an academic, a researcher, an engineer, and a neuroscientist. On the show, we discuss politics, the universe, the militarization of space, the military-industrial complex, and of course, neuroscience. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Solidarity forever. And he's also the principal scientist on a spin-out technology company. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you for inviting me. It's exciting. So I got here right in front of me your CV. Holy cow, this is pretty thick. What do you got? What do you been? What do you got going on here lately? Lots of publications. Can you talk to me about some of those things? Oh yeah, you know that's what happens when you get old. You just accumulate uh, accomplishments just by nature of time passing. Uh, so I've been uh, professing, if you want to call that. I'm a faculty member for about uh, 15, 16 years, and uh, met a uh, at a research institute that that values research quite a bit. So that means I'm expected to do a lot of research, write a lot of grants. Um, and over that time, I've focused. Primarily, my background is in neuroscience and uh, neuromotor science um, with uh, engineering as well. I got a degree in that and um, in psychology. And so all that kind of centers on uh, the kind of questions I ask. And so some of the research I do focuses on these motor control deficits that might happen if you have uh, a disease such as Parkinson's disease or maybe a traumatic brain injury. Um, other disease states as well, but a lot of things that can affect your motor control. And I really focus a lot on people's balance and, uh, and locomotion. So falls, so, that's a big problem for, uh, for an uh, aging population. Is that some of the things you deal with falls, fall, fall risk prevention, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, not to quote a whole bunch of CDC, uh, <laughs> um, statistics, but, um, if you've got someone in your life that's over the age of 65, there's like a one in four chance that they're going to fall this year. And well, actually, the number's probably getting worse than that. And uh, so the CDC uh, really made it a, a major goal of theirs to try and make a dent in that. And a lot of researchers who are doing uh, aging research uh, focus on different ways to, uh, to kind of reduce this. My focus is really on fo- uh, looking at some of the different sensory areas that are involved in balance. So you've got your vision, your vestibular system, which are these little balance organs in your inner ear, uh, separate from the part that hears. These are the part that uh, that helps you. They're like gyroscopes and a, a little accelerometers in your inner ear that 
nature evolved for us to help us keep our balance. And then the third one is our, our, our touch sensation. And it, actually a little more complicated than that. It's our somatosensory system that involves muscle sensors, sense of kinesthesia, tactile sensors. And all three of these things kind of slowly degrade with age. And uh, by the time you're 65, I mean, um, I, I don't know. <clears throat> I, I know you're not quite old enough yet, but by the time you hit 40, these things start degrading a little bit. Uh, by the time you hit 50, you'll start noticing some differences in how uh, how athletic and balanced you were when you were in your 20s and 30s. And then by the time you hit 65, it's kind of a confluence of these of these degradations that uh, the three of these senses together and your slowing of your reaction times and muscle weakness result in you being much more likely to fall under normal situations like when you're doing your regular shopping at the grocery store or when you're walking and trying to text at the same time, then you're highly vulnerable. Um, but so, yeah, we're trying to make a dent in that by uh, trying to identify what the problem is. So whether you have a, uh, you really are deficient in your vestibular system or whether you have some visual deficits that are greater than normal or, again, your touch sensation. And if any one of these is worse than degrading at a faster rate than normal, then you're even at a higher risk. Um, and the worst part about it is for people over 65 is uh, if you fall, uh, the uh, mortality rate for a fall is very high, and it's not from the fall itself. You don't usually fall over, tie in your shoelace, and then you die from it. It's more that you fall over, you're 65, 75, you don't recover from it uh, because it's a, a, your, your bones are more brittle, your recovery process is slowed. And so some people just kind of go on a downward spiral where two to three months later after a fall, they just uh, they pass away because they couldn't completely recover from the fall. Yeah, and like with aging population, lower bone density that uh, falls more likely to result in fracture, potential need for surgery, uh, weeks, months in a hospital bed, and yeah, that could be you know if you're at the if you're at a uh, at the end of your life, yeah, that could be that could that could be the yeah the the one that you know ends it all for you. But let's get into um, let's get into. Uh, Let's see, a lot to get to, a lot to get to. I kind of want to get to your first career before we get too much into the neuroscience. You had a first sure. career uh, as an aerospace engineer. So can you go in a little bit about, um, you know, uh, your aerospace degree background? Um, do you feel like there is any relation between your two areas of study? And what um, kind of caused sure. this career change? Was neuroscience something you were always interested in and you know, you kind of wanted to change gears or do you feel like there's some you know, uh, interplay between the, the two areas of study that you um, got involved with? Well, uh, it's a great question because you know, life is rarely ever planned. But uh, when I was in my uh, teens, I thought for sure that uh, I was going to be a rocket scientist and an astronaut. And you know, when we're when we're eight years old and we're playing cowboys and Indians or police and robbers or astronaut. Uh, and uh, I just never gave up on that. Um, I don't think I still have. But let's just say life is uh, is basically uh, setting the pace for me. So I went and got my aerospace engineering degree. I did uh, a stint in the military and the Air Force doing satellite engineering. And I got to use the degree a little bit. But 
honestly, what happened is the, uh, uh, the, the challenge of what I was enjoying was the engineering was not as fun to me as the theoretical side of science. And um, I, I, knew that, I knew that even in college, I was very interested in all the classes that I loved the most were over in math and physics and astrophysics. They were just by far my favorite. I even thought about leaving the, the degree in aerospace engineering and switching over to physics. But um, because I was, uh, I was an ROTC cadet, uh, they already said, no, no, we want you to get your aerospace degree. So I did it and uh, finished that up and went in the military and did satellite uh, stuff. I guess what you could say when people ask me, were you a pilot in the Air Force? And I'm like, no, but I did fly satellites. And it almost sounds cooler, but it's really not. It's probably way cooler to be an F-16 pilot. So then uh, somewhere after I did my four years in the military, I thought, you know, I, I don't think I want to keep doing this. It's not quite what I had planned for the rest of my life. So I started looking at grad school and psychology was really interesting to me um, and experimental psychology, especially so I ended up in uh, experimental psychology master's program and, uh, and focused on cognitive science, which is kind of a branch of neuroscience. I did my master's and then did my PhD in uh, cognitive neuroscience. And that led me to, uh, um, if you do the traditional academic route, you usually do a PhD and then you do postdoctoral training. And so I ended up in a neuroengineering lab in Germany, and then I did some more uh, uh, neurology postdoc and all these things just sort of mixed together, uh, leading me to my path of uh, neuroscience. But you you asked me uh, whether or not there's any tie to my engineering, and the answer is, if you have a chance to get an engineering degree, then do it because it will help you problem solve so many things in life. Uh, I, I mean, as far as scientific things go, and so I use my engineering degree quite a bit. Um, just take for instance. Uh, having to know how to do uh, um, coordinate transformations in Eulerian space. So it's all this math that I had to learn when I was doing uh, rocket science. It actually applies quite well to those little balance organs I was talking earlier about, your vestibular system. These are gyroscopes and, uh, and accelerometers that are in your ear. I mean, they're biological form of them, but they still use some of the same principles that you might learn uh, for hardware that's used in an airplane for gyroscopes and uh, accelerometers so lots so, of it too again uh i want to i want to i want to stay with the aerospace stuff some of these questions are going to be influenced from one of my favorite cognitive scientists noam chomsky um so i'm going to frame some of these questions uh because he's my favorite philosophical uh influence uh, i love reading his books I actually just got another one of them today let's see here Hot off the presses, just got this on mailed to my uh, mailbox today. Making the future: occupations, interventions, empire, and resistance. Here we wow. go. This is a this is hot off the presses. It's on my shelf. Can't wait to dig into this. But anyways, you met you met Noam Chomsky, uh, isn't that right? Do you have yeah. a story about him? You met him uh, once or twice. Yeah, I met him a couple times actually, and uh, he, there's no way he'd remember me. I mean, what you know? It's Noam Chomsky. Yeah, uh, but. I was uh, I did grad school up in Boston and uh, I was uh, had a friend over at uh, Harvard and um, she was in uh, linguistics department. And obviously that's where Noam had spent a number of his years at MIT in uh, in. Well, linguistics uh, was his main area. Um, and so, you know, they they got to hobnobbing and I just happened to be with her at the time and she introduced him to me. 
Um, I also uh, knew of him through uh, my advisor in grad school because uh, um, he had done his PhD at MIT. And so he crossed paths with Noam and, uh, and probably knew him on a first name basis and had regular interactions with him. But uh, I'd only met him uh, one other time, which was on the the T at the subway at uh, in Boston. And uh, I uh, pointed him out to my brother uh, who had no idea who he was. And he just saw this older gentleman and my brother was sitting in a seat and he got up and offered the guy, the stranger, his seat. And uh, um, uh, Noam just kind of said, oh, thanks. I'm OK standing. And I told I had to tell my brother later. It's like, no, dude, I was kind of telling trying to nod at you to say, hey, you know who that is? And uh, but my brother's a good guy, and he offered this older gentleman his seat. So that's how the how that's the only times I've met Noam. I don't. I think you probably know a lot more about him than I do, just because you've read so much of his works. Uh, you didn't bounce any neuroscience, cognitive science ideas off of him. You, you didn't get to have a discussion or anything like that. No, uh, I did not. Um, I got to sit there and uh, I, I listened to him talk to my friend, and she she was a professor at uh, at Harvard and. So he just kind of casually said to her, it's like, oh, how you been? Uh, um, and she said, oh, you know you, how it is. I'm pre-tenure and it's rough uh, in oh, those years. Yeah. And then he mentioned, uh, it's like, so you, you guys still doing philology over at Harvard? And it was, you could hear it in his tone. It was sort of like, oh, what a waste of time of linguistics. You're just doing philology. And uh um, he wasn't that demeaning. He's a, he, yeah. he said it in a joking way, and uh, <laughs> you know he's uh, he's spent so much time thinking about this in many other ways. I think that uh, he was trying to say, yeah, there's better ways to be uh, studying psycholinguistics. Yeah. So I got to observe that. Yeah, yeah, he's very direct. I've I've done a lot of uh, readings for sure, but I've heard a lot of his talks, especially his science and techno. Uh, you know, technical talks, especially on linguistics, and he'll he, he says it like he. Or he tells it like he sees it. You know, if he thinks something's a waste of time, he's going to tell you. He's not going to beat around the bush, you know. So I dig that about right. him. Uh, I asked the question about how does your two maybe careers or uh, academic research interests, um, how do they intersect? And you said, um, you know, it's a, it's a good way to problem solve. And that's uh, exactly what I read from Chomsky. He says, you know, the best way to approach the humanities and political science is from, or I'm sorry, the humanities and um, politics philosophy, um, all that kind of stuff, economics even. Um, we can talk a little bit about the soft sciences versus, you know, the hard sciences like quantum physics. Um, it's it's yeah. from a scientific lens because you get to really analyze. Um, you get to learn what an argument is. You know, in the, in the fields of science, if you try to publish something in, you know, whatever the, the, the top-notch neuroscience journal is in your field, if you're off by some calculations or, you know, you get a couple things wrong, you're going to hear about it. You're not going to sneak anything through. So uh, what he kind of says is, you know, learning science and especially engineering, problem solving, and you get to learn what a really sound technical argument looks like. And the sciences keep you honest. You know, you can have a feel, you can have a theory of like history, philosophy, economics, that kind of stuff. Um, And, you can, you know, you can have a little bit of playroom, but you know, when you're launching satellites into space, if you're off by a decimal point, it's not going to fly. You know, um, there's consequences, no doubt. And he also, um, he's been asked, you know, what, how does linguistics, uh, your two careers, um, intersect, or you know, how do they, how how do they relate to one another, linguistics and political philosophy? And he said they don't at all, and if anything, they're negative because I have to do all this, you know. 
linguistic stuff and it takes away from my passion of uh, political philosophy. So he says if it's anything, it's negative, you know. <laughs> so anyways, with that lens, let's go. To, let's get into the military industrial complex. Uh, as he says, and as I agree with, uh, the defense industry, the Pentagon, is basically a funnel for private high-tech industry under the guise of defense. So every aspect, every dynamic sector of the economy uh, is, is, is rolling in public money. Um, and that's the way that the computer industry at MIT um, and the Internet was kind of funded for decades um, in the public sector, research um, and development was uh, privately funded, although it was given away to people like Bill Gates to make a fortune on, and it was privatized. So let's go to the space industry. I just pulled this up as I was waiting for you to get on the call. SpaceX. Uh, I'm just reading some of these basic Google searches here. Got a contract. So this is the private space industry. Uh, the profits are private, but a lot of the funding is public. Uh, SpaceX apparently $2.8 billion contract last year. SpaceX has gotten, uh, looks like, over $13 billion since 2003 in public monies. Tesla, over $3 billion uh, since it's been around. Starlink, nearly a billion dollars at least. I read some stuff uh, about the Ukraine war and Starlink. Uh, and uh, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company, $3.4 billion. So... What about the private uh, space industry? Um, and what are we wasting all of our time with this billionaire space race? Why are they getting all this public money to uh, joyride into outer space? It's a fascinating uh, argument that uh, questioning to, you know, deciding whether or not uh, the government should be owning the technology that they're really helping to pay for. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one aside for a second, and let's just talk about the private race that's going on. Let me say uh, this. Let me industry. say this, though. You say the government owning it. I disagree with that. I say the the citizens owning it. You know, if we're in a democracy, government by the people for the people. So if it's our money, yeah. we should own these technologies instead of giving away technologies like the internet and computers to, again, people like um, the Apple guy, whatever his name is, uh, and Bill Gates. You jobs. Know, yeah, Jobs and and, uh, and uh, Bill Gates to make a fortune on. We could have made that. We could have uh, publicly um, owned this you know intellectual property instead of giving it away to uh, people to make a fortune on. So that's the way um, it works in America. Research and development is paid for by the taxpayers, and then it's bought or sold to billionaires or sometimes just given away. That's the way it works and functions here in our economy, but it doesn't have to be like that. But anyways, that's what I, that's what I mean. Like It could be owned by the government. It could be owned by the people or could be owned by, as I quote, elites, which it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if uh, there is a, it's a that's another argument for, I think, uh, uh, whether this is a, a corrupt late stage capitalism, whether or not this is just a result of um, you put the money in the people that may be able to turn it into something. And sometimes it turns into like elites where you have uh, just a few people that are, uh, I guess, holding on to most of the wealth. But I'll say this, when you when you put it in the hands with uh, certain people and it starts off, you know, it could be somebody small like me. I've been a lot of education and now I'm putting some of my ideas into uh, commercialization product uh, projects. Um, it could turn into some money, 
Um, some of this is being funded by private private individual investors who are willing to take a risk with the money and others. If I can get grant funding, then that's the federal dollars you're talking about that ends up going. Uh, in some cases, it's competitive grants where you're trying to get a grant to fund a new idea and see if you can turn it into something that's ingenious and that might, who knows, better the lives of others. Uh, as far as the space race goes, yeah, we, we could probably debate whether or not uh, putting rich guys into space uh, is enriching our lives at all. But the counter argument would be if you look at the space program that NASA was pushing in the 50s, 60s and 70s resulted in the development of so much new technology that that is government, more or less government owned. NASA is not private. It's a uh, government industry, government uh, uh, driven and so they were basically driving the, the forwarding of technology in that space race. However, when I look at the space race, and I've been following it now for 30, 40 years, um, NASA has you know, made a few decisions, and these are government decisions. I'm sure they weren't made unilaterally by NASA, that they, 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 what did they mothballed the, uh, the space program, um, and we became dependent on other countries in order to put our astronauts in space for at least the last 15, 20, 15 years, I think. And um, so now we've got these competitive uh, private industries that are racing to get in space. I think it's exciting. I'm, I'm not, you know, what the, the, the problem that Bezos and, and, uh, and Musk and, uh, and who's his name, Richard Branson are all like billionaires. And are they getting even richer off of this? Uh, very probably, but are they also pushing the space industry forward? Um, I think that they're moving it a lot faster than NASA has for the last 15 years. So I, I don't know if I have a good answer for whether this would be better if it was a nationalized program, uh, part of the military industrial complex, which in some ways it, uh, NASA was for many, many years, um, or whether we're better off with this private industry pushing it further and faster. The downside being that uh, Taxpayers are paying this money. Are they benef benefiting from it? Um, it's it's sometimes is an indirect uh, benefit. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just money wasted. So I would argue I would argue that there's a lot of problems right here on Earth. Uh, the environmental crisis, homelessness. There's somewhere around 500,000 um, homeless people in America. Um, poverty, extreme wealth inequality. We're in the new gilded age. $2 trillion student loan debt. Uh, so a lot of problems going on, hunger, food insecurity. Uh, as you know, with your neuroscience background, um, you know, malnourished children uh, aren't going to develop properly um, and have neurological problems and, you know, problems well um, throughout their entire life um, when children aren't uh, uh, nourished at, at childhood. Again, that's a lifetime of problems. So I would, I would argue that, yeah, I'm all for science, science education, science and technology and, and exploration. I think these are all great things, but I might argue that, yeah, maybe some of these programs should be defunded while we go ahead and, you know, take care of this wonderful planet. I think we need to um, definitely address this climate crisis before it's the death of all of us. I think it's an existential crisis. So before these billionaires get to Mars and try to terraform uh, that uh, alien landscape, I think we could do a. I think we put all those resources to saving the planet we're already on. I think that'd be much better use of resources. Uh, but I digress. Maybe we can get into some politics stuff. But what about uh, what about the militarization of space, space force, nukes in orbit? 
These nukes may be on automated, uh, automated hairpin triggers. As you know, computers glitch out. Uh, if we have these nukes on automation, that, that could be the end of all of us. Um, surveillance technology, yep. drones, and it's not too long that surveillance technology is eventually developed that it becomes uh, capable of violently uh, carrying out assassinations. So what about Space Force militarization of space nukes in orbit? What about the next frontier for the military-industrial complex? Yeah, this goes back a while. You can go back to the Reagan era when uh, we were talking about Star Wars, uh, the anti, uh, anti-ballistic missile uh, um, treaties that we entered in order to stop the, the uh, escalation of the space race. And uh, now I think we're re-entering it again where people are looking at small ways, uh, at least large countries are make, looking at ways to see if they can circumvent that. Um, you know, I right now we're... I, I'm going to interject this one here, too. I saw this in a real journal. I forget where. Uh, I don't want to name it, but like a legit journal, like a mainstream news journal. I think it was an opinion piece, and it said the next battlefield is going to be on the moon. It's going to be the U.S. versus China for the moon. <laughs> well, there's resources up there, and I bet that's true. Uh, you know, until we have like uh, a Star Trek situation where our planet is completely in kumbaya land. It's always going to, there's going to be, I guess, territorial uh, arguments that go on either here in the China, China Sea, Taiwan uh, space, or in the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, or it's going to be happening in low Earth orbit and then eventually on, uh, on uh, the moon. There's no doubt it's going to be, uh, unless there's, uh, again, like a, a unilateral decision that we as a human race are going to work together to get to the moon and Mars, uh, or at least to populate the moon and populate Mars, then there's, uh, there's no way that it's going to happen any other way than a, as a competition. However, I will say uh, the competition, uh, this competition drives things faster sometimes. So I can't completely uh, look down my nose and say, if, we, if we're all in agreement and work together, then we'll get the best, re- uh, best outcome. Because I think it's an empirical question. Are we going to get the best outcome, whether if we're competing or cooperating? There are a lot of evolutionary arguments, and I'll, I'll, I'll digress to science here for a second. There's a lot of evolutionary arguments to say cooperation often is better, the better way to solve problems. Um, and I don't know if it happen, if that's true in every single uh, problem space. All right. Have you ever seen the movie Gravity? I think it was that uh, Sandra Bullock, George Clooney. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. I don't One remember. All I remember is... Well, yeah, one of the themes I remember reading uh, or actually hearing a lecture from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was on a podcast or whatever. But one of the themes, um, he's got a lot of hot air coming out of him. I I like he at least has a lot of good stuff, but he's got a lot of hubris, too. But anyways, Neil deGrasse Tyson, definitely smart (laughs) dude for sure. But um, he was making a good argument to – and I think he said something about climate change, too. Let's get back to politics. He said climate change is happening whether you want to believe in it or not. And I, I dig that. I think we got we need more people uh, in science and science technology, science education to try to wake up people. Actually, two-thirds of the population think the US government, U.S. government and generally the governments around the world should do more to address climate change. So the media paints it out to, like, 50-50 on both sides. 96% of scientists, climate scientists, agree that it's happening uh, and two-thirds of the population want the governments of the world to do more. So the media tries to p- present it like it's 50-50, but it's not. 
But anyways, back to his uh, theme, space junk and gravity. That was one of the issues. That's why the I think they got what hit in the hit in orbit right. by some something orbiting. So, anyways, you're part of the problem, aren't you? You're putting these satellites up into space. There's tons, right? There's tons, hundreds, maybe thousands. We've been putting up there for decades. At some point, yeah. we're going to have trouble getting out of our orbit, right? Because we're going to have so much junk and flying parts. And do these eventually uh, come down to Earth? Or are they going to be up there forever? Well, a lot of the little ones, they'll just disintegrate as they reenter the atmosphere. Uh, the larger ones, um, you, you know, you can look at any rocket launch and basically you're looking at a um, the stuff that gets left off after you go from one stage to the next and you, you let, let off another piece. Um, depending on how large it is, some of it's going to dis- disintegrate and some of it is going to come back, hopefully safely over the uh, over the Pacific Ocean or something. But your question about uh, all of this space junk that's out there, um, this is this could be a good argument for why we need to uh, figure out how to, again, not uh, not necessarily arm outer space, but to go take care of it using uh, advanced laser technology or some sort of safe way to take care of space junk. I think that they're, uh, I, I'm not very conversant in this area anymore. I just remember when we used to do launch our satellites in space for mostly, sa- uh, I worked with a lot of the, uh, the GPS system, that navigational system back when it was owned by the military. Um, we only had, uh, I think at that time, about 24 satellites in space. Um, but I just heard like two days ago that uh, Elon Musk has put over a thousand satellites in space in the last uh, few years for his SpaceX project and for Spacelink. Starlink. Yeah, uh, Starlink. Star- I think I put up several hundred just for Starlink alone. Yeah. And that that to me was rather shocking because, uh, you know, space is big, but uh, it, it needs to all be tracked. Like when you go to uh, when you look at uh, the Air one of the Air Force's missions, the U.S. Air Force, is they literally track almost as much of this space junk as they can. They've got, you know, NORAD, which is uh, the, the mountain uh, base in uh, Cheyenne Mountain in uh, Colorado Springs, uh, spends a good bit of their time just cataloging. Wasn't that where Sarah Connor was going? Station. The Terminator and Sarah Connor? Wasn't that where they were heading? NORAD or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. It's it's the main, uh, it's, yeah. it's one of the main characters in so many movies. I mean, it's just a mountain, but uh, yeah. it's a mountain where a lot of really cool shit happens. So my thought is the companies that put this space junk up into orbit should be responsible for making sure it gets back down to Earth safely. And I think if anyone uh, gets hurt or injured or killed, um, they should be financially responsible. They should have the burden. So I don't know about all this stuff where Elon's putting a couple thousand uh, satellites up into space and just washing his hands like, well, hope, hope they all stay up there you know, safely and stuff. Um, I'm, I guess this is not your area of expertise, but the way I, under- I understand it, that's not the way it is, right? No, I, I would imagine uh, there's a certain level of responsibility. Like if you remember uh, not too long, about two years ago, I think uh, – China had had a, a satellite re-enter, and uh, they uh, tried to basically control where it where it came down. But there was a big question mark whether they had calculated it right or whether they were basically trying. I think that they 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 I, I don't well, I don't want to speculate because it's now already two years or three years ago that yeah. um, basically any damage they did is more or less their responsibility. But they're a nation, um, and I think uh, we would we probably 
deal with it the same way and that we'd be responsible for it. I don't know about private industry, though. Um, you know, anytime that they have a failed launch, uh, it, most launches are planned such that they're over the ocean. At least that's how uh, the U.S. did it, Cape Canaveral in Florida. You try to launch so that if there is a failure, that it's going to crash down in the ocean and minimize the amount of damage. But as far as the stuff that's up there already, um, you know, you, you, I think you try to keep control of it and you make sure that it has a controlled reentry and so that it, when it lands, it hopefully goes into the ocean if it's not burned upon burned down and reentry. Yeah, if it's anything like the recent Amazon fines from OSHA, sixty thousand uh, dollars. I don't think that's going to put a dent in it uh, in a satellite if it destroys uh, whatever someone's loved ones or. Oh uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, the the laws are pretty pretty well written for corporations to have very limited liability. It's kind of the way it's set up. Um, let's go to before we. I want to do a little bit more on space before we get into uh, the meat and potatoes of this episode, the neuroscience stuff. Um, I think just about the worst way to explore space and celestial bodies would be to send two clowns in an oversized spacesuit to jump around and hit a golf ball. Uh, wouldn't it be a lot uh, of the better? Wouldn't we wouldn't be able to explore a lot better if we just sent satellites, unmanned probes? Um, that's the way we usually do it. The way I see this uh, man, these manned space missions, it's a marketing campaign. It's a it's a PR campaign. It's a feel good campaign. Is it really worth the billions of dollars uh, spent on these uh, manned space missions? Shouldn't we just stick to probes and satellites? So, well, I'll, I'll push this back to you for a second. What, when's the last time that you uh, checked out something that came from Voyager or any of the other deep space satellites that have been floating away from us for the last uh, three decades? Um, I think that I was in Baltimore, uh, Johns Hopkins. I used to walk around the campus. I think they did a lot with the web telescope. I think it's called it's yeah. the web. Oh, man, the images are awesome. Really, really cool yeah. imaging. Beautiful. The uh, the pillars of creation. Oh, so cool. So it, it is it's amazing. Ago. But yeah. you got to be you really got to be in. You got to be a geek about this stuff to follow it at all. So how do you get an entire uh, nation to be or a country or a world to be motivated to uh, to follow this? And I think it's only by putting uh, astronauts lives at in jeopardy. Human life is on the line and you can get people motivated to follow this and feel that it's important. I'll say whether or not we use astronauts or whether we use drones and satellites maybe isn't as big of the question as whether or not we we need to be exploring out there in, uh, in, in our solar system and also be exploring even beyond that. I think it is the, uh, the, the obviously it's the next frontier to steal a, a phrase from uh, whoever Star Trek. Um, but really as humans, we are, we are uh, evolved explorers and we now have the luxury to some degree Granted, we've got all kinds of problems on our own planet, but isn't that all the more reason to say, uh, all right, if, if, we, if we do mess this planet up, which I really hope we don't, because I'm, uh, I'm a huge advocate of, uh, of uh, basically trying to make this planet a better place, but I'm also a person who feels like these things should be happening in parallel. You have to be exploring while you're also uh, trying to take care of business at home. And one way to do that is uh, to get humans behind this goal of putting more humans in space 
Um, I, I mean, granted, I wanted to be an astronaut my whole life, so of course I'm going to say that. If you told me that everything's going to be drones and, and unmanned satellites now, I'd say, what a waste. But um, I really think it makes a difference in getting people uh, interested in it and, you know, just your average individual who never never has any intention ever going to space never wanted to they still will follow a space program if there's humans involved so you just made my argument for me thank you because uh, i said that it was a pr exercise and a marketing exercise and the goal of that is to get people behind it get people excited and be like hey i don't mind that my tax dollars are going to uh put someone on the moon this is gonna be fun this is i'm gonna watch it i'm gonna be entertained but my question was scientifically beneficial. Wouldn't it be more, what are we getting more out of? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of problem solving that, that's happening. But if we're approaching it from a cosmology or physics point of view, um, aren't we just trying to figure out, you know, what, what uh, elements are making make up this planet's atmosphere? Um, you know, could there possibly be life there? Um, what's yeah. the seasons? All that kind of stuff. Uh, is that something that's best discovered with human manned missions or maybe just sending a probe out there and then, you know, eventually when we lose contact, uh, you know, we go and move on to the next project. I do want to say this real quick before I forget. Uh, I was reading a Reddit article. I get most, I'm not much of a mainstream news person anymore. I pretty much get most of my um, news from Twitter and Reddit. And this was an interesting story as Reddit always puts out there. Neil, Neil Armstrong, and what's the other guy? Uh, second shoot. guy. Yeah, um, nobody remembers the second guy, right? Uh, Buzz Aldrin. Right. Uh, Alan Shaw. Uh, yeah, Buzz Aldrin. Alan Shepard, I think, was up in the, uh, the module. That didn't yeah, he was the guy that didn't get to go out. There was, I saw a stand-up bit. He, he was like, what? I got I to gotta sit here the whole time these guys are out? And, the, and they were like, uh, oh, is it awesome out there? And they are just like, didn't want to make him feel bad. They're like, ah, oh, no, it wasn't that cool. You know, just, <laughs> oh, man, the third guy, he didn't even get to, he didn't even get to take a step on there. Um, but the, I guess the plan was if they would, um, if, if the mission would have failed, their, the official plan from NASA was to cut off communication and for them to just commit suicide. <laughs> I mean, ouch! Right? That's how I can believe it. Kill. Yeah, that was that was the plan. They were uh, NASA was just going to eventually cut off communication, and the plan was them either just commit suicide or they die from um, uh, no asphyxiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Asphyxiation. So that's pretty dark. You don't read uh, much about that in the in the NASA. No, no, but it didn't. Yeah. Well, it didn't happen. So we didn't need. We didn't even need to like contemplate that it was real. But then you go dig out those uh, those deep governmental uh, documents, and you find out that's probably what it, what Plan B was. Um, yeah. But but to circle back, you, you asked a good question. Do we need to put humans out there when we could send probes? But if the ultimate goal is population, so let's say we are exploring so that we can eventually find out whether this is potentially a place that uh, that we'd want to live or expand to, then we have to know we have to know whether or not we can survive there anyway. Now we do. We send we've sent multiple satellites and uh, ships to Mars at this point. We've had quite a few uh, landing modules that have collected a lot of information. So we're doing our due diligence and now we're about ready where we need to put people dry on speed, run. You know, on, a dry on Mars. run. You gotta do it for real here, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um what about so let's this is my last question really I think for space and let's go into the neuroscience stuff. 
Um, what what are the limitations for human exploration? Uh, the speed of light. I think that's reserved for massless particles. Human beings have mass. Some have more than others. We're never going to travel at the speed of light. I think the I believe the Milky Way is a hundred million. Uh, light years across. So what do you think the limitations are for human space travel? Obviously, we have these very vulnerable bodies, uh, vulnerable to radiation, um, probably a million ways to die in outer space. Uh, luckily, Buzz Aldrin and uh, uh, who's the other guy? <laughs> Neil Armstrong, but luckily they didn't have to figure that out. Um, but there have been some uh, catastrophes uh, related to human space programs and whatnot. Um, I remember the yeah. teacher... Uh, that went up in space and that mission. Uh, McLaughlin, so, yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, what do you think the limitations are for human space exploration, the size of the universe? Do you think it's ever possible? I mean, Mars, that's just the most, that's just the closest planet that we can, um, you know, entertain the idea of traveling to. Do you think it's possible to get outside of our solar system? Certainly not outside of our galaxy, and we're never going to probably be able to traverse the whole galaxy or interstellar travel, all that kind of stuff. I think our potential is rather limited. Are you this pessimistic as I? No, in fact, uh, I, I saw an article that came up and unfortunately I didn't have time to read it, uh, but they, uh, it might've been popular science, popular mechanics that uh, said they, they think that maybe faster than light travel is possible. Now, if I had taken the time or could have gotten access to, I, I actually, I absolutely have the access to it. I just need to read the article. Uh, but it, apparently there's some thought that maybe uh, fast and light travel is going to be possible. More than likely, uh, you know, I think about this, science, science fiction is is always couched in a little bit of science and a yeah, lot of fiction. That's like, that's and, the warping space time, right? Anti-gravity is, doesn't it? I'm not, I'm not a, too much of a sci-fi geek, but I love science generally. Uh, wormholes, warping time and space, anti-gravity, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that's science uh, fiction or do you think that this is uh, legitimate stuff that should be studied? I think it's legitimate stuff. I think that you can look at uh, some of the work that's being done on black holes and the fact that, you know, we don't fully understand uh, what happens uh, beyond the event horizon and that something happens, a singularity, and that there's uh, a warping of space-time that is beyond anything that we experience in, in our local uh, terrestrial environment. So uh, I think that there's a lot of mysteries that just need to be uh, researched in ways that might open up doors that we can't even imagine right now. And some of them we can't imagine, and we've got scientists that are working on them. Um, I'm, I'm one of these guys who believes that science can eventually, given enough time, solve everything. Um, it's maybe a, it's almost it's my faith, basically, not to get uh, uh, um, mystical here. But uh, I do feel that uh, with uh, with the right scientific uh, um, inertia behind it, you'll in enough generations, you'll be able to solve this problem. Um, then, then if you think about multi-generational, so if you think about, are we ever going to get out of our uh, solar system? I mean, we're talking uh, to get to Pluto, uh, I, I don't know how many years it would take, but um, it's within a lifetime. And then you can talk about these uh, intergenerational space travel, which you know a lot of science fiction movies already talk about. And so you just need people that, that are willing to say, hey, I'm leaving this planet and it's probably the last time I'm ever going to be on this planet, but I'm doing it because mankind, humankind is 
trying to explore the the limits of what we can tolerate. Um, I, I saw the documentary about the guy up in space for a year, had a lot of health problems when he came back, bone density, muscle weakness, maybe things he might never get back and fully recover. Um, and that's just a year around, I think, orbit, right? So, I mean, can yeah. you imagine the effects on the body, uh, a lifetime in space? I mean, wouldn't it even change our DNA and maybe change what it is to be human, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And the question then is, uh, if somebody is going to make a sacrifice, is the sacrifice that they are going to live the rest of their life in space in some sort of sub uh, less than 1G environment? And then then these health issues that they have when they come back to Earth or they go on to a terrestrial environment that has greater than zero G um, aren't aren't as much of an issue. But what is an issue is that you've made this decision that you're going to spend the rest of your life in in weightlessness. Um, it's, uh, you know, we, in order for that to be, uh, I, I don't think that that's actually going to be necessary because there's a lot of counter measures that can be done in outer space right now. We see them again in our sci-fi examples where you create a form of gravity simply through using rotating, uh, uh, uh spaceships, uh, that can create some centrifugal force. Um, and you can create certain levels of, uh, uh, of weight and problem is you have to adapt to like Coriolis uh, forces. You have to adapt to the fact that you're in a rotating environment, um, but that can be done. In fact, that's actually uh, if you want a nice segue into some of the stuff I did in grad school, that's exactly what uh, we were doing in uh, in my uh, PhD program. Is we we're looking at how to create uh, um, gravity, you know, just through rotating environments and seeing how well people can adapt to that over uh, long periods of time. Um, it was fun. It, the, the things that we did is uh, uh, when I was in university uh, during my PhD, we worked uh, on the weightlessness flights. NASA has these astronaut training flights called the, uh, the parabolic flight program. Some people call it the vomit comet. No, oh, yeah, you go, yeah. yeah, you go down to Johnson Space Center and uh, and you get on this plane and the plane is basically it's a large. Uh, I think it's a, either a DC-10 or a KC-130 um, and it is a hollowed out airplane. You go inside and you sit in some seats for uh, a few seats in the back. And then you go up and you do a bunch of experiments, uh, either on yourself, on some sort of, uh, if you're a biologist, you're doing some weightlessness studies on uh, microbes. And if you're humans, you do research on weightlessness, the effect of zero G. And also because the airplane takes a nosedive and then does a strong pull up. Uh, that causes 2G, time, two times the, the force of gravity. And so you get to see what are the effects of hypergravity and hypogravity. And, uh, you know, we tolerate it. It's, uh, it's, you adapt to it actually pretty quickly. We do these 25-second parabolas, and you do them over and over again. And while you're doing it, you're slowly adapting. Your body's adapting to being in weightlessness and then being in hypergees. And, uh, and your motor control system is adapting. So uh, those are some of the coolest experiments I ever got to do in my life was when you get to uh, figure out like how your brain processes being in these different altered uh, force environments. And we're amazingly adaptable. Our vestibular system working with our visual system um, and our somatosensory system, all of it works together so that our motor system ends up adapting to these different uh, force environments. So circling this back to the question of can humans exist uh, 
um, in long-term uh, space uh, flight with, with uh, uh, reduced gravity. Um, I think that we need to actually simulate certain level of gravity to ensure that, uh, that we maintain a certain level of muscle hypertrophy and a certain level of bone density so that if we do ever have to make landing, uh, you know, landing on some kind of terrestrial uh, um, object, a, another planet or moon, then you at least have some ability to hold yourself up when you get into that other uh, gravity field. What's a Dyson sphere all about? Isn't it like creating something with uh, like a machine or something like a sphere, I guess, uh, with enough gravity, uh, the size of the sun or something along those lines? Uh, you got me there. It's been a while. I know I've, I know I knew something about Dyson sphere at one point. Maybe you can educate me since, uh, you might be more up on this. No, I don't, I don't know. That just popped into my mind when you're talking about these, the science fiction stuff. Let, let's finish up. Last thing would be, uh, the, sp the spaghettification, uh, wormholes. Do you think it connects different parts of the galaxy together? perhaps the multiverse. Um, I think the idea of the universe though, is it was is supposed to be all encompassing and the universe means everything. So now yeah. we have a multiverse, we have everything, everything, you know? So I feel like the multiverse is just a cop out, meaning we, we don't have all the answers. So it sounds kind of cool. Um, but I kind of like the idea of like a bunch of different worlds, like blow up a, bu a bunch of bubbles, you know? And yeah, and, but like, then the question would be, what's the bubbles what space is the bubbles in? What space is it occupying? Um, I have a book here. I had a, a physicist on a universe from nothing. Um, and he said, you know, it's an interesting uh, idea. Uh, it's Lawrence, Lawrence Krauss. Um, but it's just an argument. Uh, and I think any of this multiverse stuff, uh, just arguments. Um, but what about, you know, wormholes, spaghettification, connecting different galaxies, different multiverses together. Uh, and are you going to volunteer yourself if you ever get the technology to um, explore a black hole? Are you going to be the first ones to go in, go past the event horizon? Surely we well, wouldn't want to stay in contact, right? That'd be the end of you, wouldn't it? It would be. And uh, I don't think I'd volunteer for that until we have a much better understanding of uh, what's beyond the event horizon. But, uh, there's, but if there's a question as to whether or not I would volunteer to go on a a long flight, maybe to Mars. There's no doubt about it. I would Same. volunteer for that in a second. Me I mean, I'd like to know that it's actually been uh, engineered very well and that we've, we've already sent, uh, like I said, uh, quite a few probes and, uh, and landing uh, um, uh, modules down to Mars. So I know that we can get there um, relatively safely, whether or not it's safe for humans, though, we probably need to do what we're doing, which is start exploring uh, the moon again and doing some local long distance travel with our humans in space um, and then determine whether or not uh, we can make that, uh, I guess, probably a, a five, I think it's a five year trek there and back. Um, now, the, the, the questions about, uh, I, I don't know, you, we could definitely digress for a long time if we yeah. want to talk about wormholes and yeah. uh, whether Let's or not rolling. that's into yeah. Uh, another universe or another part of the galaxy. Um, who knows? But I am actually uh, uh, just the the from the perspective of uh, multiverse and not from like Marvel comics. I mean, this idea has been discussed among uh, serious physicists for years. Is because of like uh, quantum physics and uh, um, a, a variety of reasons that they've been looking into they feel that it, it almost is a foregone conclusion that there must be a, a, a multiverse um 
I, I wish I knew more about it. I wish our physicists knew more, more about it, but uh, it's uh, it's a fascinating thought experiment. I remember, uh, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to say his name too much. I have, to, I have a limit, like nine times a podcast, Chomsky. I remember they asked him about uh, uh, the sci-fi stuff, quantum physics stuff, multiverse stuff. And he's like, I don't know, those phys- physics guys say these big words and they, you know, and they have these fancy mathematical calculations and they, and they seem to, they seem to think they know what they're talking about, but I have no idea. So I don't know, maybe it's coherent for some people, but it's, I have a, I have one of these um, cosmological constant books. It's like this thick uh, with all yeah. like the cosmological content, uh, whatever equations and all that kind of stuff we figured out over the last 50 years of physics. And I thought, Oh, I'm going to read this. This is going to be fascinating. I don't know if I got five words. I made any sense out of in that book. I, I'll never read it again. That's way, that's way out of my league. Uh, Let's go to education, well, though. We, we did enough on your first career. Um, you're, you're really an academic, right? You're a neuroscientist, but an academic. I have your CV here. Lots yeah. of lots, 18 pages, lots of publications. I remember going to – I am in healthcare. I don't get too much into my background. Uh, I remember going to a neuroscientist's um, little talk, and he was talking about you know the his academic career and all of his training as a neuroscientist – or as I'm sorry, as a neurosurgeon. You go through ton and ton. Yeah. Um, eight or 10 years post uh, bachelor's degree, a lot, fellowships, all that kind of stuff. But he was saying um, basically that, uh, you know, when, when you're, when you're starting out as a, as a fellow or, and as a grad student and uh, medical student or whatever researcher, um, usually your name is last in the publications, although you do all the work. And then when you're this big shot surgeon or academic, uh, you know, principal scientist, all that kind of stuff, you publish your name first, you get all the credit, and you don't do much of the work. Is that true? <laughs> well, interestingly, the senior author is usually the last author, but it depends on your field. So if you're working in big collaborative studies, you want to put your name at the end or you want it to be first. And everywhere else is in the middle is uh, is the place that you don't want to be. But sometimes you actually you're just happy you got on the publication. If it's a high impact paper and let's say it gets published in science or nature to the the two highest uh, journals with the highest impact factors you just want your name on there you don't care but um, if you were the if you were the driving force behind it or let's say it was a something that was largely generated out of a lab that you're writing the grants for and you are the PI the principal investigator and let's say maybe you didn't actually on a daily basis do all the grunt work um, and your name gets but on the end, because you built that lab, it's like it's like Bezos or or Musk. They built uh, their companies, and so their name is always going to be associated with the brilliant mastermind who invented uh, electric cars. And it's like, no, he didn't. He actually bought that company from somebody else and then made it a successful company. But he didn't come up with electric cars. But his name is associated with it. So. When you try to get a really high impact paper, uh, you re- you really want your name at the first or the last, and uh, and the amount of work you did is based on how many years you put into getting that publication, yeah. not yeah. so much uh, whether you necessarily did uh, the most work that day or that yeah. in that publication. Yeah, that's exactly what he was saying. And I've worked in the private sector um, before, and I think in, in education you might have seen similar things, but like contracts that I've signed. I think it's something like the intellectual property. If I came up with an invention while on the clock or something like that, it goes to the company. 
Um, yeah. Is that the same for, I think you're working on some entrepreneurial projects. So if you develop something, a technology or a device or something like that, that intellectual property belongs to the university? It does. Your name gets put on uh, on patents and uh, intellectual property, but it's still owned by the university if it if, if it's invented, uh, you know, while you're on the clock or uh, using the equipment and the ideas are generated there. So uh, ultimately, I'm given an environment at my university in order to pursue my uh, my intellectual fantasy, whatever I want to pursue, and that environment has allowed me to actually. Uh, be productive. So, I, I, I mean, it, I might sound like I drank the Kool-Aid, but the fact is uh, I couldn't have cup? done this in my basement. I mean, yeah, no, no doubt. not, even, not yeah. even Edison truly be, did it in his basement. I mean, yeah. he, he did it through uh, uh, a lot of like uh, funding and support of other people. And, and um, leeching off of Tesla's ideas. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so speaking about your uh, what did you say? Your intellectual uh, IP? property? Uh, no, yeah, IP. your what? What you? Um, your f- intellectual fantasies, right? Your intellectual fantasies. That's what you said. So you just got tenure, right? Pretty not pretty recently. Or uh, no, ago? it's I got uh, yeah, I got tenure a while ago, and then I recently got promoted to full professor. So okay, um, yeah, that happens. Uh, that happens when you spend enough time at some place, and and you're yeah, actually have to be. Fairly productive, I guess, to get promoted. But you can uh, you can work on your intellectual fantasies now, but before tenure, you didn't have that stability, right? So now you're in a place in your career where if you want to uh, pursue some half-baked idea, um, you can. But maybe you're under a lot more pressure um, as you try to um, garner the resume and bring in yeah. the revenue and the research publications. You got you got to you got to kind of be, be a machine, right? You got to uh, just to pump out all kinds of um, content uh, and go. You do, you do, yeah. But but I will say, uh, pursuing when when people think of tenure, uh, there's a couple ways to look at it. One of them is now you can rest on your laurels. You don't have to do any work anymore, and nobody can do anything to you. I don't know many people like that because basically that machine that you are during your pre-tenure years. You get brainwashed into being this hyper-productive machine that continues to behave that way because you don't know any better. And uh, and there's that reward. You know, a lot of people are just, uh, they're just internally motivated. And I feel like I'm one of them where I pursue my intellectual curiosity. And part of that is problem solving and working on problems that seem to matter to me. Sometimes I work on problems that that only matter to me and don't matter to anybody else. But most of the time, I'm actually working on uh, problems that can have an impact on other people. Um, I always find it interesting when you think about people who uh, who win Nobel Prizes. Um, a lot of the time, it's not somebody that just had an idea last year and it was a single Nobel Prize winning idea. It's usually something that they had 10, 15, 25 years ago. And it takes that long to figure out how this idea that they had has an impact on people. And so you get Nobels, people who get Nobels, they get them because the idea they had has shown over time to have a bigger impact than probably they even predicted. Um, So we often don't know what our little intellectual fantasies when we pursue them and we succeed at discovering things, 
we often don't even know if they're going to have a big impact or not. We try to plan for it and we hope that they will. Um, and that's how you get a lot of grants. I mean, when you get grants, it's usually you've proven at least to a, a body of your peers, expert peers, that this is going to have some sort of impact and it has a certain level of innovation and necessity. And then maybe they'll give you some of that public funding you were talking about in order to pursue these uh, intellectual fantasies. Yeah, uh, it's my third reference, Chomsky. It says, you know, professor um, is one of the best jobs there is, especially if you're curious about the world that we live in. Uh, it provides you an ability and the resources and the tools to kind of work on whatever your passion is. Um, yeah. I think he, he tells this joke, um, uh, you know, there's a drunk looking for his keys at, at night. And uh, the guy's like, what, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you know, I'm looking for my keys. And... Um, you know, he's like, well, where'd you drop them? And he's like, oh, way over there. And he's like, well, why are you looking here? He's like, oh, that's where the light is. So in science, where the research dollars and all that kind of stuff, uh, and maybe the, you know, the, the frontiers of science might be all the way, all the way over there. Um, and that might be your curiosity and your passion. But sometimes you have to work where the light is, you know? Yeah. No, it's true. If you're too far ahead of your peers or maybe too wacko in your ideas, then um, you you won't get positive reviews from your peers because a you haven't connected the dots that get you from where the current science is to this out there idea on the frontiers that you want to prove. You have to do that middle work in order to get to convince somebody that this is worth investing in. We call these not just high risk, uh, high risk, high reward ideas. The, there's a special area that gets funded, but these are like just crazy high risk ideas that nobody will fund. I mean, they are just beyond what people are ready to give money to. And I think that's probably what Chomsky is saying, like those, that frontier, I mean, you know, and, and I will may, I'll make a plug here for some of these giants of, uh, of industry. They may be the people that are out there pursuing these ideas uh, that, that are super high risk and they're going bankrupt. I mean, many, there's many, many, uh, uh, a, a person who was an entrepreneur who um, basically took on these high risk ideas and pursued them and then ended up bankrupt. Um, now, different argument of whether or not they bankrupt, they got went bankrupt after getting $5 million from the government or before they got that $5 million. Um, so were they gambling with your money or were they gambling with their own money? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's what rich people do. They, they typically don't gamble with their own money. Let's just use the example of uh, the billionaire sports owners. Uh, who pays for the stadium? The taxpayers do. So right. that's the oh, way yeah, I at least think it functions. I would argue I had an education um, professor on. He's a administrator uh, last week. Uh, we had a really good discussion. Uh, talked a little bit about tenure. I would argue that tenure should be expanded. I think it's a good thing. There's a lot of arguments that, um, you know, once you get tenure, you know, you kind of get lazy. Uh, you can kind of just um, keep researching your um, PhD thesis for the rest of your career if that's really what interests you. Um, you don't have any um, maybe pressure on you anymore. But I think I think it's a good thing. I think stability is a good thing. I think going to bed at night and knowing you're going to wake up tomorrow with a job is a good thing. So I think all uh, careers and professions should have some sort of tenure system where you have that stability. If you spend a certain amount of time uh, in your life, you know, at, at some company or uh, I love co-ops. So, um, you know, hopefully community or I'm sorry, worker owned and worker operated and, and that kind of deal. Mondragon's one of my favorite uh, co-ops based in Spain. Um, but yeah, I would argue for the tenure system not to be 
to go away, but to actually be expanded and hopefully, um, you know, again, more, more professions um, get to enjoy that stability. Uh, let's go to Education Inc., where I think the $2 trillion student debt uh, crisis going on right now. The Biden administration wasn't able to get much done uh, on debt forgiveness, although there's a lot of propaganda and rhetoric during the campaign. But universities, it's a lot harder to get tenure now. Um, we have, I just talked about, again, last week with this other professor, uh, if, if education in the telos isn't, about, isn't profit-seeking and profit-driven, then why does Harvard have 58 billion dollars in endowment Stanford tens of billions of dollars in endowment uh, all the all the Ivy League schools University of Pennsylvania um, MIT has 20 some billion dollars so why are these you know if it's not profit driven and profit seeking and profit motivated what's the point of having these billion dollar endowments I read them all last week so I don't feel like reading them again verbatim um, and it's a lot cheaper for universities uh, it's hard again harder now to get tenure than ever maybe you can speak to that uh, but there's the gig economy where, you know, like Uber and Grubhub or whatever, you're using your car, uh, your gas money, um, you know, you're, you're, you don't have insurance, you don't have a retirement plan, you don't have health care. So the gig economy is you're getting paid for your service. You might have to have seven or eight gig jobs just to get by. But that's a lot of what universities are doing, too. It's a lot cheaper to have a grad student or an adjunct lecturer come in and teach a course. Um, I think we talked maybe in the pre-call about my um, mathematics at a big university in the Northeast, and the person that was teaching the math class was brilliant, but he was a grad student, and he said the first day of class, I don't know very much English, uh, and I just passed the basic uh, or a prerequisite to teach uh, English, or te- teach his class in English. Uh, he was Russian, brilliant, knew everything about mathematics, couldn't field any questions. He was just kind of use his hand gestures and you know point to different parts of his equations on the board. So it wasn't a great experience. So what about Education Inc., these billion-dollar endowments, this $2 trillion um, debt crisis that we're in, and the challenges to get tenure when it's a whole lot cheaper to get grad students and adjunct uh, lecturers to teach courses instead of a tenured fancy pants professor like yourself, Jeff. <laughs> well, I think that uh, you're hitting on a really hot topic there. And I, I'm also not a fan. I'm, a, I'm a, of a generation that was able to go to college uh, when it was affordable. And uh, I look at now the, the kids that are going to college, whether it just be for an undergrad. I mean, my nephews and nieces are going to be strapped with some uh, um, with some debt. And I know that uh, many of my students who are grad students in professional programs are strapped with debt, not just a little bit of debt, the kind of debt that could have bought you a nice condo in New York City just about two decades ago. Nowadays, it will get you like, a, I don't know, a studio in Philadelphia, but it's still a lot of money. We're talking $200,000 worth of debt. And, and you're not guaranteed to get a job that will, you're guaranteed, some programs are guaranteeing you'll get a job, but you will be working on that debt for the rest of your life. Like you may be 50 to 60, right around retirement when you finally pay off the debt, which is kind of like, wow, I mean, you have 
an extra mortgage, the mortgage right. of your house and then the mortgage of your uh, student debt. The cycle repeats uh, though too. So number one, you're probably going to get a house later in life. You might not be able to save for retirement, but surely if you're spending your entire life to pay off your debt, you're not going to be able to sock away money for your kids to go to school. So the cycle continues over and over yeah. again. The best way to get ahead in the United States is to have rich parents. So pick your parents wisely. That's the way I see it at least. <laughs> Well, since we can't do that very well, uh, we're we're kind of stuck with uh, trying to figure out figure it out. Now, you talk about the gig economy. You talk about like uh, other forms of education that could be worth your money of not having to get a college education, but still being able to pay what be paid well. I mean, we're technical we're not based doing programs. Well. You're talking about like technical based programs, electricians, yep, apprentice programs. The kind of things they have in some some European countries. I know Germany for a long time had really good apprentice programs. I mean, we used to have great apprentice programs. You know, Germany, you want to be a electrician too. or a plumber, then uh, you you're uh, you go study right out of high school, and you'll be making money pretty quickly. And you may be blue collar, but you certainly don't have any debt. And uh, you know, the only thing I would add to that is make sure that everybody understands how to manage their money, which is a difficult thing in and of itself. But if you give somebody a good salary, a good, uh, you know, nine to five job and no, no huge debt that they're trying to dig themselves out of, and, uh, and they're going to be a lot happier and they're going to feel like productive members of society. And they're not going to be worried every night about whether or not they can pay their bills and whether their kids are going to get, uh, um, you know, live good lives. It's, uh, yeah, we're we're in a we're in a bit of a, a problem right now, and I think we've got a bubble coming. It's a, the academic bubble, um, just on the tail end of the real estate bubble, which is on the tail end of the dot com bubble, which is on the well, it was only seventy years before that when we had our our last huge depression. But uh, um, yeah, I don't know where I don't know where we're heading, and I'm not uh, a big fan of all this uh, student debt, and I think it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Every seven years, capitalism has to be bailed out by socialism. There's a bubble every seven years, and each is bigger and worse than the last. Anyways, um, so you did mention Germany, and I got here from my last podcast a big uh, stapled together piece of paper from the internet, so it's got to be true. Germany, it's free to go to college. Tuition is $0 for the students there. So not only technical schools, which, which I think is a good thing, but also uh, higher education. Estonia, it's free. Denmark, it's free. Hungary, uh, nearly free. Uh, New Zealand, free. Japan, okay, a little bit more expensive. The United States is the highest, though, on this list. Uh, Italy, nearly free. Less than $2,000 a year. Um... Poland, nearly free. So most places in the EU free or nearly free. Most places around the globe free or nearly free. Uh, So it's certainly not an economic issue. The United States is the richest country in world history. I think if we wanted to offer free education, we can do it. It's just not a priority. Um, So I ask you, let's go to education generally, education theory, Uh, private education, public education, um, who's education for? Is it for everyone? Anyone that's curious? Anyone that wants to, uh, you know, partake in, in a avenue of exploration and develop their curiosities and, and that kind of stuff? Anyone that is interested in um, maybe shows some sort of uh, 
dedication to whatever, a field of study, or is it just for elites? Which, what's education about? Who's it for? Yeah, definitely not for elites only. I mean, uh, really what it comes down to, if you think about what technical school is, it's about learning a trade. It's about getting uh, good enough at something that you could make, uh, make a living off of it and or be a productive member of society. I mean, people could argue, well, why does somebody have to be a productive member of society? And I'm like, you know, my philosophy on this is it brings happiness, you know, productivity. And I'm not talking about some sort of uh, um, um, brainwash mantra mantra here. I'm talking about what do people need to get fulfillment out of life? And being able to do something well is one of the best guaranteed ways that you will get fulfillment out of life. Now, as it turns out, if you can figure out how to do something that actually has uh, a positive impact on your surroundings, on your family, on your local village and or on society in general, then we really then education is for that purpose of making people be the best version of themselves. And that best version, hopefully, is something that can be uh, helpful for the society in general. I mean, we don't. You know, I, I suppose that there's going to be examples of people that uh, can't do for themselves. I mean, there are uh, when we think of a, a, hum, uh, a humane society, we take care of our children and we take care of our of our elderly and we take care of our uh, individuals who can't take care of themselves. Um, these are the, the marks of a humane society, but everyone else should be doing what they can in order to try and be uh, productive members and productive doesn't necessarily have to be in that capitalistic sense or in that, uh, even in the socialistic sense, it just has to be something where you are trying to be, be your best self. And that best self in some way is, um, going to have a positive impact on your surroundings and the people in it. Uh, so education broadly defined is just some sort of program that is preparing somebody to, uh, to be their best self. And I mean, it sounds a little bit, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, kumbaya, but I know this from a perspective of psychology and just from my own personal experience that the times that I've been most unhappy in my life are is when I didn't know what I was doing and I was forced to do it anyway. And it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And, uh, if, and I've known, I've known many people who are not particularly happy in their life and you can ask them some simple questions and it usually is they just haven't found what it is that they should be doing yet in their life. And so if I, as an educator, can help somebody find that pathway, whether it be in my field of neuroscience or engineering or uh, being part of the, uh, the military industrial complex, um, whatever the case may be, or whether it be working for uh, a giant conglomerate that is uh, makes them a cog in a wheel, yeah. probably less happiness when they're that. But uh, some people, you know, some people are just happy with stability of a paycheck and whether or not the thing that they're doing is making a difference. They don't have to know as long as their manager or their manager's manager knows that is important for the the moving forward of whatever it is. Uh, whatever system they're part of. So um, I think being an academic is a great thing, especially an academic with um, tenure, because it gives you that intellectual freedom to pursue your passions, or at least um, gives you some time to, uh, and some tools, you know, to kind of work on them. Um, you mentioned some things though. We all are part of the machine. 
Uh, my favorite band is Rage Against the Machine. I think I've been oh, Rage yeah. Against the Machine since the, the 90s at least, probably before I even knew what the machine was. But I know what it is now for sure. Um, so I'm going to go to, I'm an anarchist thinker. Noam Chomsky is also an anarchist thinker. And let's go back to Wilhelm von Humboldt, an Enlightenment era early in, um, uh, anarchist thinker. Uh, and he was discussing um, the skilled artisan uh, producing under external command. And what he means by that is producing um, uh, because of a boss, external command, someone that's not yourself. So you're not self-motivated. You're producing because your boss tells you to produce something. You are a mere cog in the wheel or a tool of production. So to Wilhelm von Humboldt, a skilled artisan producing under external command, perhaps in a system of wage slavery, you might say, renting yourself to a master for the means to get by, for the subsistence to live. We can we can admire what he does, that skilled artisan. We can admire what he makes. Maybe it's an iPhone or something like that. But we despise what he is. Uh, but as an academic, you're not... Uh, you have a lot of intellectual freedom. You're not under external command. You're kind of autonomous, you know. So it's it's kind of cool, um, and that's why I think Chomsky thinks that you know being a professor is um, you know one of the best ways to uh, academic fulfillment and maybe holistic fulfillment. Be, because I know at least working in the private sector, I've been producing a lot under external command, and I don't feel free. Maybe to quote Marx here, you know, alienated from your work a little bit for sure. Um, but there's no one really producing or pushing you, especially now that you have tenure, you can kind of use that autonomy, your passions, your creativity, um, maybe even self-development, fulfillment um, to kind of pursue those research interests. So how about what I said about the skilled artisan producing on external command? What do you think about wage slavery and anarchist um, thinking? And uh, what do you think about um, your role? You're not a wage slave, are you? Well, yeah, it's a good question. You asked earlier, uh, what do I how do I view tenure? And uh, I, I think I began, and I, as I often do, I digress before I made my points, but there's that uh, person who sits on their laurels I mentioned uh, because they've got tenure and nobody can tell them what to do anymore. And then there's the person who's the brainwashed uh, producer who basically had to work so hard to get tenure that all they know how to do now is to be a productive machine. But then there's the other person, I think probably more like Chomsky, who somehow is, uh, he just was, is at the peak of his field and the, nobody tells him what to do. Um, but I might be fantasizing that too, because people do tell me what to do. I know that I have to keep bringing in external dollars at grant money. I have to keep or, or my teaching load increases. And if I, I like teaching, but I don't want to spend all my time teaching. So that yeah. means that I have to be writing uh, more grants and bringing in more external money uh, in order to fund my salary. So, yes, I have what's called guaranteed hard salary versus soft money, which means if I'm on a soft money job, uh, which I'm not, I'm a tenure professor who's not on soft money, uh, then um, I basically... Uh, have to answer, you know, I have to keep working to ensure that I don't get forced to take teach a whole lot more classes. Um, so there is a little bit of, I don't want to call it slave labor, but, um, but I am still working for the man at some level in that I want to make sure that I get to do what I want to do. Um, I think that there are tenured professors who are so high in the game that they are so desirable uh, from almost any institution that they would be recruited and offered just an amazing situation where all they can, all they have to do is just sit there and think deep thoughts 
they don't have to publish a paper and they could just sit there and think deep thoughts and that would be enough to have their name associated with their institution. These are rare birds. These are yeah. like Nobel Prize winners right. and Fields Medals and, uh, and Noam Chomsky's uh, of the world. <laughs> um, but the rest of us, you know, whether we're highly educated or we're super smart, we're just not the, uh, we're, we're, we don't have that kind of draw. So we still have to answer to a master. Um, now, take the other extreme that you gave, which is the, the skilled artisan that's working for an external pressure for a boss. Um, I, you know, I, I alluded to the idea that, well, if you could be guaranteed uh, a, a regular wage, you wouldn't have to worry about it. You still get to do what it is that you love to do. Let's say you like making widgets and you're one of the, one of the best widget makers, even though most, most people can make widgets, but this person just really loves the craft of making widgets. Um, to be told that they have to make widgets doesn't matter to them because they love making widgets. Now, the fact that these widgets are part of a cog, they're part of a, a system that is uh, necessary for something bigger that requires widgets, um, I don't know. Is it, is it a burden on them to say, uh, somebody's telling you to do this, um, and they're like, I don't care, I want to do it anyway, and it's helping out some bigger system, so I'm fine with that. I don't often reflect upon the fact that the widgets I'm making are serving a greater good. But I think, uh, I think a lot of people are looking, you know, they, they do want to be serving some greater good, whether it be to society or, you know, uh, not to go down a religious path. Some people just want to serve a much greater good. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I agree with the uh, philosopher, uh, just say, von Humboldt, who yeah, was arguing, right. arguing that uh, you're, you're despised because you are just a cog in a wheel. What if, what if you want to be that cog? Um, what if you want to be an exploited worker in a, in a widget machine? <laughs> well, let's say well, you're not. I yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I, I get it. I mean, no doubt. And I think we're all here. Uh, I usually end with what's the meaning of life. I think we're all here searching for the passion. What are we, what are we doing here? What's the meaning of life? Maybe we'll ask that at the end. Uh, let's, let's finish up with some education stuff, and then we will – Hopefully, get to maybe maybe six or seven minutes on neuroscience. I bring on a neuroscientist uh, and don't even ask him a question about neuroscience. But let, let's you're an academic too, so you're an expert in a number of different fields, which is great to have you on here. We'll have to do it again. Uh, what about teach to test standardized tests? What about weed out courses? What about programs? Um, isn't like PhDs? Isn't it something like 50% of PhD programs or PhD students start and, and, and never finish? Um, yeah. What about, um, I guess, the what about the Education Inc. and the way the system is designed? Um, what do you think about all that stuff? Uh, you know, teach to test, standardize tests, weed out courses, um, fail out rates in universities, especially at high-end PhD programs and even um, professional training programs like MD programs and uh, programs where you get professional degrees, law degrees, that kind of stuff. Um, do, you, do you think that – and what about just generally, um, what about uh, – like what rating system – like do we have to have tests and rating systems and do we have to give people A's and B's? I actually had an education doctor on not too long ago. He was part of a – um, a building up basically a MD program. Actually, I think it was a doctor of osteopathic medicine program. Um, basically, uh, an exception. He was uh, one of the, I think he said he was the second or third person hired. He's, he's an education doctor. That's what he does, build programs and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah. Um, and he said that they were building a program that didn't give out A's, B's, and C's, but just pass fail. You know, if you basically knew what yep. you knew, if you basically knew what you were supposed to know, you passed. And if there was a major problem, you didn't. But he said pretty much everyone, you know, passed. So, uh, again, I'll, I, I kind of go off on a tangent a little bit, but let's just circle back to these. Teach to test, standardized tests, weed out courses, rating systems generally. Um, what about all that stuff? You got to have some kind of outcome measure, and I think you you know that from your own uh, background that if you don't have some sort of measure of saying, "Am I doing what I'm doing? Is it is it right? Is it actually the the outcome that I want?" Then you you have to have some metric for determining that. So when you think about like a professional program that's going to get you a certification at the end. Um, licensing programs, whether it be a medical license or some kind of clinical license, um, basically is trying to maintain a standard where if you're dealing with, uh, let's say you're dealing with patients, you have to make sure your patients are safe. So you have to make sure that this individual knows how to carry out these uh, these uh, steps in order to maintain the safety of their patient. So I feel like standardized tests in this case maybe not SATs and GREs and LCATs and MCATs um, are keeping people in and out of programs. But once you're in the program, there better be some kind of measure at the end of it that tells you whether or not you learned what you needed to learn. Um, so that brings us back to like uh, teach, uh, well, teach the test. That part I'm not a big fan of because it's, uh, um, that's not testing your generalizability of your knowledge. It's basically testing your test-taking skills, and uh, and that doesn't necessarily translate to safety of a patient. Well, but let's hold on a minute. Let's hold on a minute. Someone has to design these tests, right? So who gets to determine what's on the test and why? Eventually, you know, someone's have to determining what, what standardized thing needs to be learned, what outcome measure needs to be met. Um, so, yeah, I think... I'm not so certain. I'm not so certain about this stuff. I, I don't think that people need, I certainly don't think standardized tests are of much value. And I know now, as, as I talked to the education doctor not too long ago, a lot of uh, universities are getting rid of these standardized tests, these SATs and that kind of thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it might be a good thing. Um, maybe even increase um, the diversity at universities and um, oh, yeah. access to universities. But uh, I'm not so sure. I, I, I think at some point, you know, uh, there needs to be rating systems and, and that's kind of thing, especially if you're a medical doctor or a surgeon, I guess, and I would probably leave it up to the licensing board or, you know, people within the profession. But again, you know, standardized tests and tests generally, someone has to design, um, you know, what, what's going to be on the test, right? So who should, who should that be? Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I think that a lot more thought needs to be put into who's designing this because we see, uh, we see the, uh, the, the results of something like SATs, which uh, invariably have uh, skewness to them because of uh, where your background, what race, your cultural yeah, or ethnic race, back, socioeconomic background. upbringing, all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and if somebody uh, were able to design a better test, which I think is absolutely doable, you can talk to your education doctorates and your education experts and your learning experts and there could be a better design test that would get at the skills that would say is this person likely to succeed in this particular program and um, that I don't think is necessarily being done by GREs and SATs the, to determine whether or not this person has uh, whether it correlates well with the likelihood of success in that field but I do think you don't want to waste people's time saying you know, uh, 
well, I took a test. It turns out I'm horrible about math, but I still want to be a physicist. Uh, and it's like, wait, you do understand you need some really good math skills. It's like, yeah, but uh, th- this this test is unfair. And uh, and I think that it didn't take my background into account. Well, that's possibly true. And maybe we can get that individual up to speed so that they could maybe become a, a physicist. But then you're talking about, all right, individualized uh, education programs. And we already have a problem with uh, how we're trying to educate the masses with college, with just giving them college educations. And those are overpriced. I think that it is uh, an idealistic problem to think that we can train everybody to be whatever it is they want in the world. Uh, and we're going to help you figure it out. That's a huge problem, but it's a Perfect. It's a great problem. Yeah. It's like the idealistic future is what Aldous Huxley was looking for in A Brave New World is that he figured out in his little fictionalized uh, version of the world. He said, yeah, you, you end up doing what it is you're genetically best designed to do. And we don't have that kind of specificity in our testing. Uh, we yeah. certainly um, certainly uh, don't know if we'll ever get there, but it would be great if we could. Uh, yeah. Where, not necessarily brave new world, but uh, definitely get us to where we're not wasting our time doing things like spending a dozen years, you know, five years on something that uh, is something we just didn't want to do when we grew up. I'm a philosopher and I think I'm an idealist as well. So some of that stuff really does appeal to me. So let's go to education theory and then we got to move to some neuroscience. That's what all the yeah. people are waiting for. Okay. What is education about? Should it be about creating um, independent thinkers, creative thinkers that ask difficult questions to the establishment, to professors, to people within those ivory towers like you, Jeff? Or should education be about teach to test, passing that test, standardized tests, conformity, obedience, subservience, teaching discipline and punish them, punishing them with a failing grade if they don't meet those requirements. Can I tell you, I have been out of school for almost a decade now. Uh, I got a couple degrees. I still have nightmares where I wake up in the night in a cold sweat. I forgot to do an assignment. I have a test in the morning I completely forgot about and I did not study. I've been out of college and grad school for almost a decade. I still have these dreams. What's that all about? Uh, obviously, you know, I've had some bad experiences and I had some successes too, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of negative things with, um, these manufactured deadlines, uh, obedience, discipline, conformity, standardized tests. I can't even tell you how many scantrons I've took in my life. Hundreds, if not thousands of them. It's insane. So do you think that everybody, let's say uh, you or I'll just speak for myself. Let's say that I'm a self-motivated guy who is driven to learn because I was uh, either instilled by good parenting or something that made me a curious individual. And so I decided that knowledge is power and the more I want to, I don't necessarily want power. I just want more knowledge. And I knew that it would be the 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 future the uh, guarantee a good future for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know that everybody is lucky enough to be instilled with that. I wish that we had some sort of uh, mantra in place, some sort of educational system that starts from day one that allows us to convince every citizen of the United States or the world that uh, that when you when you're born 
you have you should learn how to appreciate knowledge because knowledge will be uh, your uh, your um, uh, what do you call it? It will give you the independence. It'll That's your you... responsibility as an educator to instill that. That's what I would say to you. I would turn that back. It on is. You. But by the time you get to me, by the time you get to me, you're already a hardened, cynical 20 year old. And there's only so much I can do to change your worldview. Sure. This has to start. This has to start at like birth. I mean, education starts as soon as your child is born. I agree. And you know, parenting is, it's, it's no easy job and I'm not a parent, but I know that I can see the difference in how my parents raised me and they weren't perfect, but they did a great job in just saying, look, Jeff, you do not have a choice. They didn't, they didn't say it like as a, uh, as an ultimatum, but it was never in my mind that I wasn't going to be going to college because that's basically what was instilled in me. Uh, and it wasn't just college. It was just a desire to do well in school all the way up and leading into college and then beyond. And uh, I've met many, many people, many, many people who are as or more intelligent than I am that don't have much desire to consume knowledge. And so that's a, a missed opportunity for them. They're, uh, they, they somehow weren't instilled with just the curiosity about the universe that I was. Now, getting back to a really good question you had earlier about um, are we uh, are we trying to educate conformity? Are we trying to is education about creating conformity? Yeah, and, and still obedience and still conformity and yeah, still and, yeah, training people to basically fit into the system as cogs in that capitalist machine. You graduate from college, you get a job at a corporation, you pay back your loan debt, and then you die. <laughs> exactly, cynic, right? that's horrible. Talk about a cynic, right? When you put it that way. But uh, I will ask, I don't know if everybody, I don't know if everybody can be instilled with this deep sense of curiosity. If they could, would the world be a better place if everybody were absolutely curious about all their surroundings? And I'd like to believe that they would be. But what if that created pandemonium? What if chaos ensued because everybody questioned the the meaning of life and everybody questions. Talk, yeah, talk about idealism as an anarchist. This sounds like a heaven on earth to me. That sounds amazing. Let's go to this place. Okay, okay, and then we're uh, possibly back into uh, you're going to be carrying around one hand. Your right hand is going to be on your holstered gun, <laughs> and your other hand is just going to be looking around, seeing. All right, uh, are there any rules here in this anarchy? You, you sound like a you sound like a Hobbesian. Uh, Hobbesian uh, pre society was the world would be something violent, brutish, and short, something along those lines. Are you a Hobbesian? You you like the authority? You like to keep uh, you know you like coloring inside the lines? You like to have um, you know? Oh, there's plenty of room to color outside the lines, even in a like a safe society. So I think that there's like a spectrum here, and so pure chaos, I guarantee. Uh, it would be the wild, wild west, only worse. It's, uh, uh, what is it, the uh, nature, uh, was it Darwin that said nature is, uh, is like this uh, bloody-toothed uh, um, creature that basically it's just constantly ready to take you out. Um, I don't, I don't want to be in that situation. I mean, how could I ever write poetry if I had to worry about somebody uh, uh, killing me, with stabbing me in the back? So, Pure anarchy, uh, I think, in the sense of like uh, um, no rules, absolutely not. But 
but over, you know, a totalitarian system where you have, you know, you've got, uh, what is it, uh, 1984, right, where right. Big Brother. Yeah, world government, New World Order kind of stuff. Now, I, yeah. I'm going to stop you here. I don't want to get too much into political theory. I'm just kind of being tongue-in-cheek with anarchy. There's a rich tradition tradition of anarchist uh, thinkers dating back to Noam Chomsky, uh, you know, modern, you know, Noam Chomsky, but you can go to uh, Peter Pro- uh, Kropotkin, uh, Mikhail Bakunin, Emma Goldman, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, even, uh, that's not in, in, in Gramsci, uh, and that's not what I believe. I believe, uh, Rudolf Rocker, uh, anarcho-syndicalism, basically is a highly organized society, uh, structured around democratically, uh, organized workplaces or maybe even communities. So that's what we mean. I'm just kind of being tongue in cheek. Uh, we do got to <laughs> move on though. We got, we do got to move on. I don't want to get into anarchist theory or structure of society. You're an expert in neuroscience. So let's get into some neuroscience stuff. You had mentioned, um, I think you mentioned something about prenatally and learning and that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the Chomsky lectures uh, I was uh, listening to, uh, he had talked about language development actually happens prenatally, and they can do some fMRI studies or something like that on the, um, I guess the the newborn or whatever they call it. I guess the developing infant or whatever in the in the mother's womb, and um, you know the language areas of the brain are turning on. So you're already starting to acquire language before you're even born. What do you think about that? Yep. Have you heard any of these studies? Yeah, absolutely. They they say to start t- talking and singing to your kid uh, uh, even while they're still uh, in the womb, and uh, it makes a difference. Now there's some research that shows. Uh, that the amount of exposure to um, vocabulary and uh, linguistic content in the first few years of your life even makes a difference. And so that learning I was talking about, the education, the importance of it starting as early as, as with the early parenting, um, it matters early. It matters right when you're learning language. And uh, so even, and this is another, I love this fact as well, uh, is bringing your kids up bilingual or tri or multilingual, um, it changes, uh, it, it increases their intelligence. If you can think of a general G as in the general intelligence, uh, um, it, in, apparently there's literature that says being brought up with a couple of different languages uh, changes your ability to think about all kinds of things. So you're uh, your general intelligence, your problem-solving skills, all of these things are affected by the fact that you're rewiring, you're wiring your brain in that early critical period um, before age of seven or so. And uh, and this plays a role in just what kind of thinker you're going to be. Now, uh, I'll actually, uh, I'll, I'll try to link this because I sometimes try to link thoughts in my head just because they happen randomly all the time. But um, when, when we're talking about... Uh, can is every person capable of being a curious thinker? If I were to imagine a world where we start education from even pre pre birth, so in those early nine months uh, before you're born, um, you start wiring those neurons so that when you come out, you're already uh, predisposed towards uh, learning. Then uh, that would be a great technique for increasing the likelihood that people can be curious thinkers throughout their life. Um, I, I love, this is kind of what got me interested in, in philosophy. I love the idea of ideas. <laughs> I really do. Where does ideas come from? I like Descartes, um, and, uh, you know, the mind body problem. David Hume is one of my favorite philosophers. Uh, they touched on it, Immanuel Kant as well. 
Where do you think ideas come from? Uh, are they random? Are they because of external stimuli? Um, what of innate ideas? That's kind of what Chomsky um, and, and I guess Chomsky talks about um, the basically the programming that we are born with, and he kind of thinks that language the language acquisition device. Just like we have legs uh, that, that we can walk, we have a language acquisition device uh, that we're pre-programmed with um, to acquire language. We can pick out language from a chaotic environment, a bunch of different noise, all kinds of things going on in the newborn's uh, home life and community. But they're able to kind of pick out language and and use it um, and, you know, acquire it and have a conversation uh, and, a, and a technical and beautiful conversation and a depth conversation like you and I are doing now. That's just part of general intelligence, that big G that you're talking about. So what do you think about Chomsky's idea of the language acquisition device, innate ideas, the program that we are born with? And just generally, this is one of the questions that got me so interested in the last five or so years in philosophy and neuroscience. What are ideas and where do they come from? Well, uh, it's not the pineal gland, uh, which is what uh, Descartes might have argued. um, I was on the pineal podcast. I got a friend. uh, He does a podcast, too, the pineal podcast. Maybe I'll set you guys up sometime. But, uh, yeah, that's that was Descartes. Uh, He was uh, that, that was his idea. Uh, he, he thought that if, if you know anything about Descartes and his philosophy, the pineal gland, there's only one of them, and it's in the, I guess, the center of the brain. And that's where he yeah. thought is as good of a spot as any for the mind and the body to come together. Yeah, it's where the soul is. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, I, I'm not a Cartesian when it comes down to it. I'm not a dualist. I'm a person who uh, actually believes that the mind-body problem is it needs to just be squished into one thing. But as far as where ideas come from, um, it, it, I really think it just is, it, it's through the interaction of our brain with the environment. And there are no ideas that are completely uh, original without the influence of environment. We evolved, we co-evolved in this, uh, in this world we call Earth. And through that, we have uh, learned uh, through our genetic programming to uh, to basically exist in our environment in a certain way. And through our environment, we get information and through our interaction with, uh, and that includes people in our environment. And this is, uh, this is basically how language arises. I would say that uh, language is, uh, it's constantly evolving. So people who are like uh, strict uh, believers that uh, the Queen's English is the only way the English should be spoken or Hochdeutsch, uh, the high German is the only way that German should be spoken. I mean, if you look at any language, it's constantly evolving. If you take a language like American English, you put it on an island and you and, and you have people that are uh, separated from uh, the rest of society for eh, probably only about two generations they will start evolving their own dialect within a couple generations. And so language is there. Chomsky's certainly, I, I don't have any problem with this idea that we have a genetic programming to produce language, even if, even in the, uh, the absence of a specific language. And I think that if I'm remembering correctly, I think that there are some examples of like twins born outside. They, they basically 
form their own language and it's a, a new creation that they have. And I think that there were some examples over throughout history where this has happened, where a new language is just created through between two people interacting during a critical period. Um, and then on the flip side, if you're born without any linguistic exposure during those first, let's say, seven years of your life, and you have no interactions with other humans, you usually will not ever be able to pick up a language any better than maybe a parrot or a dog will. Yeah, I think you talked about, uh, it was a horrible story, uh, someone kept his daughter in a closet for the first 10 years or so of her life. And there was a lot of um, social workers and therapists trying to work with her. And uh, she was not able to acquire um, language. Um, so kind of a sad story. And uh, was it Nim Chimsky? Um, uh, Nim Chimsky, chimpanzees, a lot of studies there. Uh, yeah. We're not really able to teach chimpanzees because they don't have this so-called language acquisition device uh, but let's say, you know, we took your child and put them, uh, if you had a child and put them randomly in Japan at birth, um, they would easily acquire the Japanese language without any problem. And if we took some, you know, newborn uh, Japanese baby and brought them here in America, he'd probably speak perfect Northeastern English, you know, if he was talking to right. uh, one of us. So that's, I think, you know, kind of Chomsky's uh, argument with that. Uh, what do you think about innate ideas, a priori, you know, ideas, I guess, without experience, that kind of thing. A lot of philosophers have talked about it. Does, does that, that kind of yeah. concept interest you? Yeah, it is. A, it's an interesting one, because I think that, uh, again, if we circle back to the evolution of the, of the, the human genome, um, it, it never there, there's so much programming in our genome that that basically once you are born and then you start uh, developing as an individual, um, these, uh, these things will manifest themselves. For instance, the fact that we're bipedal um, walkers is something that a child learns pretty much on their own. You, you exactly. This, was, this is Chomsky's argument. A child will learn to walk just as easy as they will pick up language, obviously, if they're in a you know, fulfilling environment with parents that yeah, talk to them or family members, that kind of thing. That's exactly his argument in a nutshell. We have the same yeah. tools to walk as we do to have, you know, language and conversation. Yeah. And you don't need, uh, you know, you don't need a demonstration. And, uh, and if you basically are now granted, there are some feral children, uh, and a couple of, I published a paper on uh, quadrupedal, uh, walkers, uh, in Turkey that, uh, have, I think some kind of genetic, uh, um, disorder that results in them being more quadrupedally uh, uh, locomotor, but um, even they have the ability to walk standing up on two legs, and that's because we have we've evolved to be bipedal locomotors. Um, and and you know, for me, locomotion is as much a a, a topic of neuroscience as language is, um, because I study the brainstem, I study the the midbrain locomotor region, and the Areas that are involved in uh, in creating bipedal stance. Um, for me, uh, I look at that and I think, like, all right, this is a is good an example of how we've evolved and what's likely to happen um, in our terrestrial environment um, as uh, as something like language occurring. So we've we've hammered Chomsky's ideas a lot tonight. So allow me to just hammer a couple more here. Chomsky talks about studying neuroscience a lot, like we would study. Uh, a computer if we hit it with a hammer some of the because obviously the ethical issues with experimentations on humans so sometimes we have genetic issues or um, trauma and that's kind of how we study the brain um, so 
Uh, what do you think about that? And then what do you think about the idea of artificial intelligence? Obviously, it's huge right now. Um, I think Chomsky said this quick before that, you know, well, my question would be, you know, do, is, what, what of artificial intelligence in, in computers thinking like human beings? Is that intelligible? Is that meaningful to you? Um, and then he kind of quipped, uh, you know, would you say a submarine swims? You know, they're just kind of different things, right? So right. what do you think about how we study the brain, you know, similar to the analogy of hitting a hammer, uh, hitting a computer with a hammer and then trying to study, you know, what went wrong? Uh, and then what, what kind of similarities do you see between the study in the fields of artificial intelligence and, and how human beings think and what of, what of our intelligence or consciousness and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, the first one, I think, is, uh, is a question we, we struggle with a lot, especially if you go down the, the um, sort of analogy role of thinking that a brain can be like a computer program. And I think that, um, you know, that falls short, that analogy falls short in that we're not uh, thinking like uh, a computer program. We created these computer programs. We're the ones who designed them. And uh, we didn't necessarily say, well, the best and most efficient computer program with, uh, with these electro, uh, you know, electrical connections and these diodes, uh, well, the best way we can design it if we make it just like neurons. Well, we didn't have the technology, so we created computers a certain way. And now these computers uh, compute in ways that sometimes have similarities the way we where our, way our brains work and then other times they just uh, work in a very different way sometimes much more efficient and other times uh, much less capable of some of the abilities we have if we think about uh, AI um, right now there are things that AI are already capable even some of this unsupervised learning that um, is uh, is being done and you've got supervised learning is where you train a neural network and then you've got unsupervised where it's actually learning the rules by itself sometimes it learns rules that our brain has never even learned and um, what do you mean by neural network are you talking about neurons you're talking about a machine well uh so uh yeah it's a good question neural that so sometimes we refer to neural networks as a type of uh like some of the early uh ai designs involved like back propagation and hidden layers where they were creating a model of what they thought might be a brain, but really they were working their way towards some kind of this motor learning, i.e., which is a part of a subset of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, the problem is, a, a, in some ways, it's better than the way we think. In other ways, again, it's not as good, but it's still, uh, it's still sort of a representation that may or may not be the way the brain is working. Um, so I think that there's a lot of amazing, I mean, we're seeing it right now. If you haven't stopped and used something like chat GPT or some of these, uh, um, um, AI type, uh, learning, there's, uh, some music, uh, music ones, some drawing ones, and I forget the names off the top of my head, but they can create, they are almost to the point where they're generative. I mean, they are creating novel, uh, information from the sources that it's drawing from, which is in, in some ways, that's exactly what our brain is doing. We, uh, we have a brain, it's structured a certain way, um, and it is taking information in from the environment that it's in, and it's doing it through the sensory channels that we have available to us, that we've, that we've evolved over millennia, over millions of years. And, um, and so we are predisposed towards 
perceiving our environment a certain way. We, we see in the visual light spectrum, there are animals out there that see in, uh, in infrared and also in ultraviolet. And, these, uh, and so they perceive their world in a different way than we perceive our world. So we are limited by the sensory inputs that we have. When we think about AI, um, we ask ourselves, what are the sensory organs? What are the ways that a, a, a machine learning um, program can take information in? In and right now we're the ones programming that. So if we're programming programming it to be able to take information in ways very very different than how we take information in, then they're going to learn. It's going to be able to learn in different ways than we do. What do you think about uh, eye language? Uh, this is linguistic stuff. Internal language, um, talking to oneself. I do it all day long. Um, I was under the impression that everyone did it. I run. I read some psychology papers last night in preparation for this. Somewhere between fifteen and maybe thirty percent of the population apparently don't have a constant internal dialogue. Um, do you talk to yourself? And what do you think about those studies? Uh, in the yeah. research paper, it did say that this is hard to study, uh, and that's why I think you know psychology. Not exactly a hard science, you know, because we can only delve so deeply into our own thoughts. So it's pretty much you're asking someone, you know, a question. So, you know, this isn't like, again, quantum physics to go uh, into a very hard science for sure. Uh, But what do you think about, and then maybe we can talk about, you know, the differences between neuroscience, cognitive science. Is that just tomato, tomato? And what about psychology? But my my first question is I was researching for this eye language, internal language. And uh, do you have that constant dialogue? dialogue and what about people that don't have it that's kind of strange to me yeah i do i i talk to myself uh unfortunately too much i think and uh sometimes in a loud voice um but that's from you know you spend enough time on your own or you spend enough time uh without having a uh, an interlocutor, then you end up having conversations um here's an interesting research topic i'm an only child I bet you, in, uh, I bet you, only children have a lot of eye language going on. Maybe more so than other people. I'm, I'm not sure, but that's just popped right into my head. I'm an only child. I've been talking to myself since day one, you know, because there's no one else around. At least not my age. No, none of my peers, you know. Yeah. No, no. I actually love to see the statistics. There's probably, you know, I don't know unless that was an original thought, but maybe uh, there's some statistics out there. That I just had that thought as we're talking. Yeah, I mean, I just yeah. had that thought as we're talking. It seems to make sense to me. We got to study it, though, right? You can't just make, uh, you can't just make sweeping generalizations. You got to study it. That's what science is. Absolutely. Right? You got a hypothesis, and now you got a way. You you got to have some. There's some techniques that you can actually do some demographic studies to find out what the. Uh, the, the prevalence of eye, eye languages in single children. And, and also, you, you know, that's not going to explain all the variable variability because you're going to have single children who were uh, brought up in a, in a communal environment or single children who had, uh, um, you know, a mute mother or, I mean, there's just too many different uh, common variabilities. That one wouldn't be very common, the last so, one. So Chomsky talks about this eye language. He seems to think that we probably... Aristotle said um, language is sound with meaning, but Chomsky actually turns around and says it's meaning eye language in our heads, and then we just articulate it. So Chomsky, yeah. with the, with the um, somewhere around 100,000 or so years ago, we developed the ability to have language, but he seems to think that it first started with thought. We probably had these thoughts in our head, and maybe we were thinking in symbols and that kind of thing. Um, but he, he, seems to, he seems to think that um, we had in, in eye language first, internal language, and this internal dialogue, and then eventually this community. Actually, I have a book here. Um, 
be pulled out. Construction of social reality. John Searle. Oh, Searle. Yeah. Um, he's over. He's a philosopher. Um, but I'm looking forward to, to, to studying it. Um, I'm getting into some linguistic stuff, but he's big on, um, you know, basically, you know, community and language and how they are interlinked and that sort of thing. And maybe even uh, language is impossible without society. Like, could you have a complex and sophisticated language with only yourself? Probably not, right? So, but what do you think about um, I language? Uh, evolution, the evolution of language. This is all into, you know, getting into linguistics, but I find it all fascinating. What do you think about um, all those ideas there? Well, Searle, uh, actually, it's nice that you brought him up because he has the famous Chinese yep. room argument. And uh, Yeah, I, I looked into it a little bit. Can you talk about that? Yeah, let me see if I can remember the argument. It's uh, So it comes back to this, uh, this uh, question about ideas and whether or not uh, language has meaning um, without actually uh can you create language without actually having understanding and so i think he has like the chinese room is basically you've got uh this symbol system where you have this symbol i'm i'm trying to determine whether or not somebody inside this room understands chinese or not or the person behind the 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 magic box has can understand what i'm saying and so basically i I, I speak Chinese and I write a, a symbol uh, that has meaning and I put it through a little slot. And inside this this uh, Chinese symbol um, is taken by, uh, could be taken by a program or it could be taken by a person. And the person looks at the symbol that I put on the thing and then they, they go into this big catalog that looks up to see what, uh, what that um, symbol means. And so they find out that this symbol means, let's say, uh, uh, today is sunny and so they look in their little catalog and they say, well, what do you respond to today is sunny? And it's like, yeah, but it's a little humid. So you, you take this uh, without knowing what it means. You find a symbol that that means, yeah, but it's but it's uh, but it's humid today. Now, the individual that's looking for the symbol actually doesn't have the translation. They just have this symbol that looks like hieroglyphics. And then they find that the symbol that they need to respond with also looks like hieroglyphics. They they draw it on a on a card and they send it out the slot and the person who understands chinese on the outside looks at it and says oh wow this person said uh it yeah but it's humid today to my response that it's sunny it's like wow does this person inside understand chinese and in this example the person who was taking the card actually doesn't understand chinese they just looked it up in this big catalog and they responded now so, that's kind of what animals do, right? They can memorize a number of symbols, and it's not yeah, language, too, so it's a little um, different, right? And that's what so that's what parrots do. You know, they they can teach a parrot to talk, and it doesn't generate. And this would be Chomsky's argument: would be it's not generative. They can't go beyond this little this little par- parlay between a word and a word. Or he talks about of- the poverty of stimulus. The poverty of stimulus is the stimulus is impoverished um and yet our language is infinite so we can yeah. have a new uh phrase there'd be no way to know we probably said some phrases never spoken ever before in the history of mankind there'd be no way to know anyways um but yeah. we can have these conversations that goes on and on forever uh, infinitely um and yet we have this poverty of stimulus you know we have this environment where we're able to take cues from and learn about but yet we can make this finite environment with finite 
data points and then produce some infinite language in this language system, this societal language system that continues to grow new words all the time, new phrases all the time. Uh, so, that, yeah, that gets into, I mean, I'm no linguist, but I, I've read a lot of Chomsky's stuff, and I, I like his arguments. I guess some linguists argue against some of his stuff, but I guess he's known as the father of modern linguistics, and he revolutionized the field. So I'm sure some of the stuff he's argued uh, holds up pretty well. Yeah, but but just like Newton, uh, uh, some of his three laws of uh, physics actually uh, were disproven at at least at the uh, um, at different levels by you know Einstein and others. So even though the ideas Newton's three thir- three laws still stand, I think people these giants of thought like Chomsky uh, become targets because their ideas are so transformative. And your goal then is to see how you can disprove it. And, and in many ways, Chomsky's, uh, well, I shouldn't say many ways, in a lot of, uh, of Chomsky's arm arguments have been spent 40, people spent 40 years trying to show where the holes in it are. And absolutely, if you go uh, to a linguistics department, um, there will be Chomsky in camps and there'll be anti-Chomsky in camps. And the anti-Chomskyans also have like brilliant thinkers who are showing that, yeah, not everything he said is true. But what's impressive is that when you generate an idea or a, a theory of ideas that result in a whole whole uh, field starting to try and disprove you, that's when you know you've made an impact as an academic. And that's when we talk about Chomsky, that's why you know that this guy is uh, um, he's impactful. Whether he's right about everything, there's no doubt he's not. But, uh, but that he had transformative ideas uh, about linguistics, um, you know, could be argued that his ideas in linguistics were more transformative than his ideas of uh, sociopolitical theory. Um, I'm not enough of an expert on his sociopolitical theory to be able to say whether his, those ideas are as transformative as his linguistic ideas. Yeah, I think he kind of builds off a rich tradition. I don't know how much of his political thought is original. Uh, I think, again, if you're going to go back into uh, anarchist thought, uh, a lot of the a lot of the stuff was he's kind of likes or tends to um, articulate or talk about. Uh, it's, it's been said before. So um, you know, these are these are systems of government, and you know, humanities invented by human beings. They're never going to be as complex as the hard sciences like, you know, neuroscience even or the brain science, cognitive sciences, and certainly not quantum uh, physics, which might be the most uh, advanced of them all. And it might have the answers to the universe. I guess that's what Einstein wanted to do is have a a theory of everything, um, a universal theory of, um, I guess, quantum physics, quantum gravity. I know there's some scientists working on it. I did have a physicist on here and he was saying that, yeah, he doesn't think a lot of the stuff that we, because I asked him about like paradigm shifts and scientific revolutions, like for example, Copernicus, you know, with the model of the universe, um, you know, it was the, the, you know, the earth was the center of the universe and, and then yeah. it shifted to the sun. And then I guess now there is no center of the universe. Um, he doesn't seem to think um, that type of paradigm shift will happen. And a lot of Newton's stuff still holds up. It's just with the quantum physics, we got a lot sharper you know, with the tools that we use to um, understand our reality. So he thinks a lot of the stuff is right now, but we're going to get a little bit sharper with our tools and our ability to understand the universe. And I'll take his word for it because I'm no physicist, uh, I'm no neuroscientist uh, either. But I want to get to um, 
What do I want to get to? So many different things here. Okay, let's go to um, Broca's aphasia, Wernicke's aphasia. We're talking a little about a little bit about language. Um, yeah. There's some different pathologies. Some people can speak fluently but have a difficulty, what understanding or having conversation or hearing. And then there's some yeah. issues with um, some people can read fluently. Uh, but can't write and vice versa. So there's all different sorts of language dysfunctions and communicative dysfunctions. That's something that I'm not a speech pathologist, but I think that's something that they work on. Can you speak to these types of uh, issues? And does it help you try to understand the brain and how we use language? Uh, with these yeah. fMRI studies, right, there's a lot of different regions of the brain that are, um, that are active during the, when we're having a conversation. Yeah, when you talk about like... Uh... Uh, Wernicke's aphasia that just uh, corresponds with having a damage or a lesion uh, that can be caused by like a, a stroke. A, a, a stroke is basically just a, a, ca- a, a blood vessel that explodes or breaks down and then you lose uh, blood supply to a particular part of the brain. In this case, Wernicke's aphasia, the Wernicke's is, is right near the junction of the parietal and the uh, temporal uh, lobes in the brain, so sort of kind of behind your your ear. And that area, if you have uh, damage to Wernicke's uh, area, then basically you can uh, still produce um, language, but you don't have a full understanding. So it's uh, often called uh, uh, not productive aphasia. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to draw in a blank. I think it's uh, so expressive aphasia is when you damage Broca's area. And this is when you have things like extreme form of, uh, of Broca's aphasia is mutism. You literally can't say anything. And this is an area that's closer to uh, your uh, motor cortex. And so if you damage that area of the brain, then, um, then you're, you can't produce language. So you can understand it fine. You can sit there and have a deep and meaningful conversation, uh, one-sided conversation with somebody with Broca's aphasia, and they just won't be able to tell you to shut up because... They basically are uh, experiencing productive aphasia or uh, mutism. Um, so then you talk about uh, other areas. So, the, so what's really cool about this is that it shows some specificity of the brain. There are certain regions that through uh, the process of psychology and neuroscience, we've been able, able to isolate these areas of the brain. And we show that there's actually some modularity to the brain and certain areas are very specific to certain functions. And you talked about people that can't write and people that can't, then people that can't read. So you've got uh, um, agraphia. So agraphia, meaning the inability to write is uh, another area of the brain that you, if you damage that, it's different than, uh, than Broca's or, or uh, Wernicke's aphasia. It's uh, just a certain area of the brain that causes you the inability to write, but you can still read. But then you have this other area called that can cause alexia, which means inability to read. So you can have uh, a fascinating case of somebody who had agraphia sine alexia. So that just is like Latin for saying they had an inability to write without the inability to read. And so that meant a very specific area of the brain um, had been damaged, but a different area involved in reading had not been damaged. So, so there's, what I, a lot of, there's a lot of resiliency built into the brain, right? So like if you have a stroke, um, you know, and, and some uh, pathways are damaged, 
Um, other regions of the brain um, can be reorganized, uh, even if parts of the brain die. So maybe you can speak to a little bit of that in neuroplasticity and maybe overall the resiliency of the brain. Uh, there's not a lot of resiliency uh, in a computer. If I would smash my laptop, that'd be the end of it with a hammer, right? But the brain... Um, uh, Phineas Gage, right? He took a steel pipe through his frontal lobe and he was able to kind of have uh, a relatively normal life, although he had a lot of personality disorders and, and right. problems making relationships because I guess he had, um, you know, ability, emotional, areas, yeah, emotional uh, distress or, you know, he was uh, kind of all over the place. Or, but yeah, maybe you can speak to that, to the resilience sure. of the brain, neuroplasticity and the, the curious case of uh, Phineas Gage. Absolutely. That, and, and he's a fascinating case. He's taught in most uh, neuroscience classes, psychology classes, because he represents not only the, the combination of the specificity of certain areas of the brain and how they can be, uh, they, when they're damaged, they can tell you a little, a, a little bit about what that area of the brain must have done. In his case, the guy, uh, this is 1800s, he was a railroad worker. He's tamping in uh, some uh, explosives and it shoots a a, uh, a rod right through the front of his uh, of his uh, front of his face and goes through his frontal lobe when it happens to go through uh, what you'd call I think not only the the, the dorsal frontal lateral um, area of the the cortex but also the limbic lobe um, which is involved in emotional processing so your anterior cingulate gyrus and uh, so he he basically could continue working uh, or he couldn't continue working because. Uh, even though he had all the motor facilities, uh, he basically was a foreman and he no longer had the skills uh, of being a, a good people manager. And he was kind of an, a, an a-hole after that. And he, I think uh, he, he just basically was very irascible and uh, um, in, in emotionally labile. So that suggests that even though he not only survived the trauma and he was able to walk and function and do all the motor skills that were involved with railroad, uh, railroad construction. Um, he just wasn't able to do managerial skills because he didn't have the emotional, uh, uh stability anymore. Um, thinking about, uh, what that says to us, um, you know, relative to the, the resilience of the brain. So yes, uh, he compensated with some other areas and able to, do all his basic functions and his motor function and walk and talk. And uh, it, he still couldn't recover. They weren't able to, I don't know if he didn't go through probably any clinical psychology training back then. This is the 1800s. So he couldn't see a therapist to kind of work through these problems and take some kind of drugs that would maybe uh, reduce the level of uh, possible anxiety and um, increased uh, irritability um, but we deal with this still today when we have, think of our military veterans or people who have a traumatic brain injury. Um, one of the most common uh, symptoms of people who uh, have a traumatic brain injury is they may recover all of their sensory motor skills and their vision and their, their speech, but they may have emotional, um, um, emotional problems. And these can be related to damage to limbic areas, damage to uh, connectivity between areas of the brain that are used for, uh, um, used for controlling uh, some of our emotional states.
So neuroplasticity um, rewiring, it's always happening, right? Um, so let's say someone that is blind, um, maybe that region of the brain that's used to process vision is used for another purpose. Um, and that, I think the same thing, like if someone used, uh, let's say they use their, lose their uh, hands, you know, they, they blow, yeah. say they're blown off in an accident. I've seen people, you know, be able to train their feet to, to draw and to write and to do to work on the computer. So can you talk about the brain rewiring itself? It's doing it all the time, right? Every minute, second, uh, sure. every day. Yeah, and it's not uh, it's not that we're regrowing neurons or anything. We don't really have that ability other than uh, maybe in the hippocampus. But uh, most of our brain is uh, you're, you're, you're born with most of the neurons you're going to have. Um, some of that's changing with technology and stem cell and things like that. Uh, but right now, uh, what, what happens is the plasticity is happening because of the changing of the dendrites and the axons, the connectivity of all these little ten- tentacles that come off of each one of our neurons, and they reconnect and form new pathways. They can have, what, so that- hundreds, thousands of connections? Oh, my God. Uh, this, this We're talking hundreds of billions of connections. Each neuron. So- each no, neuron. no, no. Yeah, but uh, how, many, how many can each probably th- Yeah, probably thousands. But uh, throughout our brain, we've got, I think, 300 uh, billion neurons. And so... So that's probably uh, where that resiliency in these pathways is built in, right? With all these connections. Like if one pathway uh, gets disconnected or whatever, um, you might have dozens of others, right? Yeah, and, and it's not completely... Uh, rewirable in any possible way. So what happens is, so the example that you gave earlier, somebody maybe being able to learn how to write with their feet if they uh, lost their arms, and um, and and that that when you're if you're congenitally born without any arms and you only have your feet, then there's a certain not necessarily a critical period, but an early period where you're learning how to use the the limbs and digits that you have and so people that were born congenitally without uh without arms actually can do pretty amazing things with their feet. Is this the homunculus is that what we're talking about right now well yeah we're talking about the sensory yeah the homunculus being that sensory motor uh area of the brain that you break it down into different sections where different parts of your sensory motor cortex your motor cortex and your sensory cortex are really line up with uh, regions of your body that that they're controlling the muscles and the sensory input from those. So your uh, so if you were to lose your hands, let's say in adulthood, and you try to like make up for it by training your feet, you'd really what would have to happen is you'd have to have some connectivity taking over of certain parts of the of your homunculus that were used for your hands now get taken over somewhat by. Uh, um, neural connections from your feet. It's difficult. It's easier if those t- territorial areas of your brain are close to each other. And when the problem with that is sometimes when you lose a limb, you end up with phantom, uh, phantom limb pain because uh, basically those areas get taken over by other parts of your sensory and motor system. And so those areas start being stimulated by areas that didn't used to be associated. So I think a classic example, you lose your arm then, uh, and some, and you may rub your face in a certain way. And that causes a phantom limb pain because those two areas are close in your, uh, in your sensory motor cortex. Are you familiar with the work of Adrian Lowe? Uh, pain, pain neuroscience. 
No, I don't think I am. Okay, he's a, uh, I think he's South African. He's a neuroscientist, studies a lot about uh, the pain science. Um, definitely in medicine, a popular budding area of study, but he'll be on the podcast in a couple of weeks, so I look forward to that. He's a neuroscientist, uh, and uh, that's what he's dedicated most of his research to, is just pain science, and I guess oh, yeah. the um, neuro involvement of pain. Uh, the pain yep. experience. Um, we got like 10 minutes left, give or take. So let's just get to as much as we can. Maybe a little bit of rapid fire stuff. Maybe get a little bit weird here. Lobotomies. What was going on with that? Oh, yeah. Everybody should have one of those, especially <laughs> if they're uh, what were they doing? They're living well, in that the, was crazy. In that the... was a crazy period in medicine. What was going on there? Yeah, you you just uh, uh, you stick a little uh, electrode up behind the eyeball. It's like and an ice you kinda, pick, right? You put it up the nose or – oh, yeah, the eye. That's right. Yeah. yeah, right up through the eye, and there's like this little orbital opening that you could stend, stend like an ice pick. You're right, is a, a yeah. better example. They, they In more modern era, I think they use an electrode, and they basically buzz this area of the – um, I think the frontal lobe, it might have even been uh, the anterior cingulate. I don't remember exactly whether uh, whether it was the anterior cingulate, that limbic area. But it basically was for people that had depression. Uh, I think they did it for people that uh, had uh, um, hypersexuality. They were Children. trying to like... I saw an interview. It. A child had it. He was hyperactive as a child. And I, I forget who this guy was, but he lived a normal life, relatively speaking. I think he might even still be alive. But he did an interview and said something like, you know, after this experiment, no one told me what was going on. I mean, how are these people not criminalized? But he said something like, I just always felt empty, like there was something missing from me my whole life. Yeah. Weird, weird stuff. Yeah. It's, it, it really goes in to show how much the emotional state, whether it's even like the most subtlest thing, gives us uh, every event we experience in life has a certain valuation given it to uh, emotional valence is what they often talk about in the jargon is the emotional valence of certain events in our life have, and they can, and they don't have to be like high emotional valence and low emotional valence just have like this small little uh, variation. It's like, Oh yeah, I just, uh, I saw something happen and it kind of made me smile. And then I saw something else happen in my life and it kind of made me a little sad, but imagine if all of that were taken away. So you basically look around the world and you have pretty much totally placid and you have no emotional valence. Um, you're, you're, you're not, you've taken away their depression and you've taken away their mania, but you also have taken away everything in between too. So again, not much time left and a million more questions. We'll have to go another one. I'd love to have you back sometime in the future. Um, not anytime soon, but we got to do this Happy again. This, is, this has been great. Uh, I, I got to ask this question because I find it very interesting. One of the reasons uh, I kind of wanted to get you on the podcast. I'm, I haven't read it yet. Uh, what, The Emperor's New Mind or something like that? Roger Penrose. What about the quantum physics of the brain? He's trying to kind of, he's a quantum physics guy and trying to study the brain and the, the most basic elemental component of the brain. Uh, does that idea, is it coherent to you? Is it interesting to you? Uh, is he just going on a, uh, a wild goose chase? Is there, you think there's some fundamental component? Like, for example, this is how I get back to ideas. You know, how, how do you think ideas are stored? Do you think there's this like one little uh, tiny connection in the brain where I have this memory from childhood? Or do you think these memories um work because of, uh, of these pathways and connections of a number of different regions of the brain. And when I think about that, uh, you know, different parts of my brain light up. So what do you think about the quantum physics of 
the brain and ideas, memories, all that kind of yeah. stuff. So two, two, two immediate thoughts. One is uh, the storage, the, there's not a grandmother cell. And this is like a, a classic uh, argument um, in neuroscience is like, is there a cell that we, uh, that if you take that cell out, then we can eradicate the memory of your grandmother. And it's like, yeah, answer, like a little ice pick right now. You had a bad childhood memory and I would just yeah. go to this tiny region pick it a little bit like they did with the lobotomies and all of a sudden you're cured, right? You don't have that memory anymore. That's not, that's not how it happens. It's not how it works. works. Uh, no, it, it's, it's always like networks of associations. And so you think of your parietal lobe and it basically is like connecting to your hippocampus, which is connecting to your frontal lobe and, uh, and to the, not just the, and then the emotional valence of it. I mean, the, the, the memory of almost any event is combined with not just a visual uh, picture that goes with it, but possibly with a smell, with an emotional valence, with uh, a series of events that went along with that. And so uh, I think that probably there's not a single memory in our brain that can be isolated to just a single location. We could just take, uh, as your example said, an ice pick and just eradicate it, which which I would look and say uh, the the uh, sunshine, uh, uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless oh, mind. That's that a movie, good one. Yeah, which I love, love Me the too. movie Me because too. I think they were getting at the complexity of memories and how they yeah. just could not, they couldn't erase Clementine. No, oh yeah, I, I wanted brain. to date Clementine, man. I, I wanted them to get back together. I, I was bought in. I love that movie. That was a good flick. Um, isn't yeah. you said about the the smells? Isn't it amazing what a smell? I, if I smell some uh, fresh cut grass, I'm instantly back to little league. I'm nine yeah. years old. I'm just like having the time of my life. It's amazing where, and then you'll just catch like where am I? And you're, and you're back to reality. But man, they're they're very vivid. Sometimes you, you smell something and it just brings you back, doesn't it? Well, that uh, that olfactory bulb is connected right to the. I think it's the uh, circuit of Papez, this little euphornix, right in your brain. Is where a lot of those memories are tapped into the emotional states that link to your hippocampus. And so uh, smells are like, man, they're so strong in being able to evoke instant recall of memory from something. You know, it's you hear prioritize, right? It kind of it it has just that quick connection doesn't have far, yeah. far to travel. It's just kind of prioritized. Like it, you, you kind yeah. of brain put some other stuff on messaging on hold and you go right to that smell, I guess, maybe. I don't know. As I'm here yep. trying to figure out the brain and how it works. So maybe I'll get somewhere one of these days. <laughs> um, not much more time left. Not much more time left. Let's go to Carl Young. He said something about to, to deny the subconscious is to say we basically understand, I'm paraphrasing, everything there is to know about the brain. What do you think about the subconscious? Uh, you know, the things that maybe we can't completely articulate, maybe, you know, that symbolism. Uh, you ever, ever like, think something, feel something, but you can't quite articulate it, you can't write it out, but, but you know, you know, you kind of get the general gist. Uh, and that's kind of what I think um, with that eye language and, you know, maybe yeah. our ancestors uh, who, you know, eventually there was probably a mutation and all of a sudden we had the ability for thought and language before they had that social communal language, they probably knew some things, but without having the words. So you think in pictures, maybe smells, yeah. images, colors, who knows, anything. Um, but what do you think about the subconscious Carl Jung and his work? 
Yeah, I think, uh, well, I call it Carl Jung, uh, Jung in general. I think he had some good stuff to say. And then he also has some stuff that goes, talks about like past lives and uh, yeah. the Jungian he's construct. Got some and, stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah he's that's... got some great stuff. And then some, holy cow, what's this guy? This guy's nuts. I think he, I think the Red Book or something like that is just like uh, some crazy, I don't know. Anyways, go ahead. You, you're more an expert so, on him than I. I mean, subconscious, uh, I, I'm not an expert on Jung, but I am a ex, uh, I'm, I'm enough of a, know enough of of him to know that uh, he had wacky stuff, but if you just want to talk about subconscious, then absolutely, you know, the the eye language you were talking about is constantly going on and it's processing, and there's so much stuff going on beneath the surface that doesn't rise to the level of consciousness, and yet when it's needed, you know, I, I can use a simple example of motor control where basically I've got the ability to uh, to run quickly on a rocky surface that's uh, that's all uneven without even seeing much of it, and that is happening because it goes straight to my cerebellum through some uh, ascending pathways that don't ever get to my cortex, and I do not need to perceive everything that my my feet and my my toes and my legs are doing as I uh, agilely navigate uh, over some rocky stone rocky surface. Well, we also have uh, that kind of stuff going on, I think, in, in much of our emotional processing. When you think about REM sleep, there's a lot of processing that's going on in our brains that are uh, consolidating the memories we have of the day that we just experienced. So here, let, let, this is my last question. we got like two minutes. Dreams. Do you think that's just a system maintenance thing? Do you take any meaning from dreams? What's that all about? Oh, I think it's just our brain processing uh, all of our events and all the things that we've got going on. And uh, there's, I don't look any deeper than saying uh, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly not connecting us to the multiverse. It's, uh, it's just kind of processing our memories and processing what we learned and then preparing us to, to deal with uh, probably the next day. But that, that phrase, that sleep on it, and then they've done some studies, like people that are tired and, and their test scores and then they sleep on it and they haven't done any more preparing and yet they do a lot better. So there's something to that, right? Yeah, memory consolidation, uh, pretty pretty well studied. Stronger uh, connections, is that what you mean? Like the, the pathways are getting more yep. entrenched? No, there, I guess, the pathways brain? are just going through a process. Uh, and the same thing with uh, motor consolidation, which is uh, if you learn a t- particular motor skill, then sleep on it and you wake up the next day and you do better than you ever did the day before. And it's like, how is it that I'm, I didn't practice overnight? I just went to sleep. Yeah. And uh you know, it's a consolidation of these memories uh, in a way where it's a form of learning. Yeah. Uh, we didn't even get to that. I wanted to talk about learning. How does it happen? I don't think you have four more hours to talk about it. Neither do I. Uh, we're going to have to cut it off here. Uh, less than a minute to go. Uh, anything you wanted to say to the audience? Where can people find you or anything you want to make mention of? Or uh, I got nothing else. So have a, have a great night. But the stage is yours. You got a minute or so if you want to say anything to anybody out there. Oh, no, I've just uh, said everything I wanted to say tonight. Uh, but if you ask me some more provocative questions the next time we meet, I know I'll have a mouthful to say the next time. It's been totally enjoyable, and uh, I hope you invite me back. All right, Jeff, it's been great. Have a great night. All right, take care now. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusion. I also want to thank my special guest, Dr. Jeff, a neuroscientist, a researcher, an academic, and in his past life, a rocket scientist. 
I hope you enjoyed our discussion on many different things, including the universe, language, ideas, and neuroscience. We'll have to do it again. So much more to get to. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. Oh, 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 oh,